Talk Recorded live. I cannot imagine what it must have been like in 1963 to have the treat of watching that happen for the first time and realizing you were watching a quite different kind of show from anything you'd watched before. In the name of Tlaloc and the great spirit of your taxa, I, Tlatoxo, High Priest of Sacrifice, honor you for procuring this collection of visions. before the recording started, save a few, because I know you said you'd, uh, you were going off to make me a cup of coffee with them. Oh. Um, sorry, they're all on the ground. <laughs> Bad coffee puns. <laughs> right. Let's see who's uh, first on my list to be introduced, so he's not surprised. It's Mr. Dark Skeptical. Hello, sir. Hello, good sir. How are you? Good, 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 good. Glad you could join us. Indeed, sir. Also on audio, hopefully we'll get to him quickly before he has to drop off this time, eh, Dave? It's exactly. Mr. Randall Thor. <laughs> Hello, everyone. I'm trying to think of puns to eclipse the ones that have been already used, but oh well. well actually, we shouldn't really have Mike on. Mike's a bit redundant because I don't think they'd invented the wheel, had they? Mm. Oh, boy. <laughs> I don't believe I'm about to sacrifice my sanity for this. Anyway, also that was a timely <laughs> comment there. <laughs> It's Jeff, the seventh doctor. Hello, Jeff. No puns here. <laughs> Hi, Ian. How are you today? Hello, Dave. I'm about to run away in fear, I think. <laughs> <laughs> what have I started? <laughs> also joining us on the telephone, it's Mr. Cuddly Ken. Hi, and hi, Dave. I'm proud to be here at the Super Bowl of Podcasts. <laughs> there you go. Planning on going out shopping later. What time does the Super Bowl start? We want to make sure we're the only ones in the store. Uh, and by the way, I am not miming the things I'm saying. <laughs> Beyonce Knowles. <laughs> oh, boy. Alrighty. And lastly on audio, and not leastly, it's Kobo. Hello, Kobo. What's up, Ian? Hey, Dave. I don't know, but it's sacrificial knife poised above my chest, I think. <laughs> oh, dear. I shall bring this podcast to an end with my thumb. <laughs> yes, and while I think of somewhere you can stick that, uh, it's time to lower the code of silence. Control, new agent training program, section 3.5, the cone of silence. To activate, simply lower the cone and speak clearly. What? Do not overuse the cone of silence. What? Do not shout in the cone of silence. What? In fact, don't even use the cone of silence. What? It's never worked right. I don't know why we bought it in the first place. The portable cone of silence. What? Yes, and the newly installed cone has a uh, one-way door. 
So once they're out, they can't get back in. Uh, <laughs> under the cone today is Cybob, Mick, the Ascended Master, Enterprise Who, and Logan, who's probably just uh, reviewing our ratings after that last comment I made. Right! <laughs> that's all that's on audio, and introducing the one last member of staff, it's the Typing Monkey. It's news time! Go, Typing Monkey, go! Yeah! Yay! All right. First up with news, it's Dave. Okay, just a, a few small pieces. Um... Uh, one thing that uh, I know that will interest Ian beyond many others in the room is just to say that uh, one of his favourite actresses, uh, Angel Colby, uh, lately of uh, the uh, Merlin, uh, here in the UK is going to be in a six-part series called Dan- Dancing on the Edge, which uh, starts uh, Monday and Tuesday here in the UK on BBC Two, two thousand. Uh, sorry, uh, at, at 9 p.m. Uh, so uh, looking out for that, and it has um, a couple of uh, Doctor Who alumni in it, as uh, Anthony Head in it, and it also has um, oh, what's his name, the old policeman guy. I'll get to him in a minute. Um, <laughs> the other news is, of course, um, it's uh, Being Human restarting. It's season five here in the UK. Uh, starts tonight on BBC Three. Um, and I think it was Tim that mentioned that um, the high-definition version is running later in the, on in the week. I think you have to wait till Saturday to see that. But here in the UK, Being uh, be Human, BBC Three, um, at 10 p.m. Oh, that's it. It's um, there you are. Made my first mistake already. The other Dot Who alumni is in Being Human, and um, it's Phil Davis from. Uh, um, um, Oh, what's, which episode was he in? The one, the volcano one. Fires of Pompeii. Fires oh, of Pompeii. On. Thank you, you indeed. And he's also been in Sherlock. Sherlock. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So he he's in being human, and as I say, the high definition doesn't air, I think, until Saturday. Uh, so that's it. Um, I think I ought to mention something that Mick the Ascendant just brought up prior to as. Going live, and that is that uh, since our last uh, episode, uh, another sad death in the uh, Doctor Who world, uh, Bernard Horsfall, Horsfall uh, from uh, well, died aged 82, been in a number of uh, Doctor Who, uh, famous for uh, Chancellor Goff in the 1976 story The Deadly Assassin, uh, but he's been in a number of other. Ones uh, played Taron in the six-part story Planet of the Daleks, uh, and uh, he was had a small role in the War Games with the second Doctor Patrick Troughton. And this is information that's on DoctorWhoNews.net. And just related to that, let me also say that um, it was it would have been Elizabeth Sladen's birthday on the first of this month. We're recording this, of course, on Wednesday the third February. Would have been her birthday. And uh, there are a few back episodes of the Cult Collective that you could listen to. Uh, in actual fact, as a back catalogue episode, I put a Twitter on our Cult and Twitter about the studio episode that in myself and uh, Mike did uh, around that sad occasion uh, of her loss. So there are quite a number of uh, things there. And um, I think that's about it from me in at the moment. Okay. And... Uh... Next up is 
Mike, hand out Thor with some news. I have two news items here. The first one uh, is uh, IDW Comics. Last year, IDW Comics did a, a line. They did, had a, a, a crossover with, with Star Trek, The Next Generation, which concluded it was what, eight, an eight-issue special. Well, IDW is doing another Doctor Who special this year to go along with the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who. Um, the returning writers from that Star Trek TNG uh, Doctor Who crossover comic, uh, uh, what, Scott and David Tipton, uh, are writing a 50th anniversary story. It's an 11-issue series called Prisoners of Time. And the way this story works out, uh, there's this villain who's messing with the, with the Doctor's timeline, and each each individual episode, uh, issue of this series deals with a different incarnation of the Doctor going in order. So the first issue deals with the first Doctor, second second is the second, so on and so forth. The uh, the interesting, neat thing about this besides the story is that each each specific issue has its own artist. Let's see what I have here. Um, Simon Fraser did, did the art for this. Uh, the second, doc- second issue will be illustrated by Lee Sullivan. Mike Collins will be the illustrator for the third Doctor. And Gary Erskine being the, the illustrator for the fourth. Uh, we haven't heard anything about uh, the, the fifth Doctor and beyond. But that is uh, going along with the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who for this year. And issue one is available as as of this week, I believe. And uh, I've read it. It's a, it's a pretty good, it's a pretty interesting start to the story. And it, it's neat to see the, the first Doctor as, you know, in, in comic form again and there's a there's a bit at the end of this comic book where the author is talking about how talking about the the original uh first doctor comics back in the 60s and how it was just a completely different world from the the televised doctor who but that's its own discussion in, in it in and of itself but either way prisoners of time it's a 50th anniversary comic book series for doctor who and it looks to be a rather interesting story so there's that there's also this week um, well, we've also another 50th anniversary thing that we've heard about is Mark Gaddis's documentary drama that's coming up later this year, coming up in November, called uh, An Adventure in Time, uh, Adventure in Space and Time. I keep wanting to get the time and space confused, but it's Adventure in Space and Time. But we have some casting announcement announcements for this. Uh, of course, uh, this this will involve either the characters William Hartnell and uh, uh, Sidney Newman, Verity Lambert, so on and so forth. We have. Um, Playing the role of Verity Lambert, we have Jessica Rain, who is on. Uh, uh, you might know her from Call of the Midwife. We also have uh, Sacha Dawan from uh, the History Boys, Last Tango in Halifax, playing uh, uh, Waris Hussein. So we have that. But the 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 main role here, uh, playing the role of William Hartnell in An Adventure in, in Space and Time, is David Bradley, who has been on Doctor Who before. He was in the, the Series 7A episode, Dinosaurs on a Spaceship. Uh, ah. uh, so he, and, of course, you also know him from the Harry Potter movies, playing the role, playing Argus Filch. But David Bradley is going to be playing William Hartnell in An Adventure in Space and Time, which I think that's a rather, that, that's a rather interesting casting announcement because I remember early last year when we got the early trailers for Series 7A for Doctor Who, and there's the very brief clip at the end of David Bradley's character in Dinosaurs in the Spaceship. There was there were a lot of Doctor Who fans looking at that and seeing and thinking, wait, the first Doctor is back on Doctor Who? What's going on here? So the the physical resemblance is already there. And, yeah, so we, we have that 
we have the, the casting of William Hartnell. David Bradley is William Hartnell as the first Doctor in An Adventure in Space and Time, coming up later this year. So that's what I have for news. Okay. Right. Thank you very much, sir. And I've got some um, minor news items. Um, uh, it was announced uh, February 1st, actually, that uh, Toys R Us in the UK is to uh, have a, a line of um, exclusive uh, Doctor Who uh, do I call them toys anymore, or do we call them uh, action figures? Or I don't know. But anyway, um, action it's, figures. Uh, action figures, yes. Uh, <laughs> but it is uh, a Dalek and Doctor set. Uh, if you go to uh, the Doctor Who site. Co. Uk, uh, look at that merchandise section. There's a. Uh, I'll also put the link in the in the chat here. Um, and they've got some pictures there of uh, a couple of the. Um, couple of the sets they've got uh, Patrick Troughton with uh, well, got the second Doctor with uh, an Evil of the Daleks Dalek uh, Tenth Doctor with the Stolen Earth Dalek and of course the Sixth Doctor with a uh, with a uh, Revelation of the Daleks Dalek um, so it's an interesting set but there's been no word whether or not uh, they'll be released here in the US or not uh, Toys R Us does actually uh, carry uh, some Doctor Who items, at least on their website. They do list some some items as being available in stores, but as to what stores are available in, who knows. Um, but so hopefully it might be something that we see on uh, in, the, in the U.S. as well. Uh, the other thing I came across too on the, the Doctor Who news site is a company called uh, Dark Bunny Tees has been given uh, official license to produce uh, some 50th anniversary T-shirts. And of course, they're starting uh, with the first Doctor uh, with two T-shirts. Uh, one, uh, it's an I am Foreman uh, T-shirt. Uh, it says, I am Foreman, scrap merchant, 76 Totters Lane. Uh, underneath it says, what are you doing here? And uh, above that, it says, uh, we're not of this race. We are not of this earth. And there's a little TARDIS behind uh, a brick wall and a gate, uh, which I really, really, really kind of want that T-shirt. Uh, the other one is a, is a Dalek shirt. Uh, which I'm up on my screen right now. Ah. Um, but yes, uh, every month they're going to be coming out with uh, a, another shirt. Um, a different design every month for each of the 11 doctors. So uh, yeah, go to darkbunnytees.com and uh, you'll see the, the various different t-shirts they do. And uh, there's a icon there for uh, Doctor Who. And uh, click on that and you can see all they've got. So... Yeah, I think that about wraps it up for me. I'm, I, I, I've quit trying to do the, the what they're showing in New Zealand uh, ones. Just um, if you check out every every uh, every week uh, the Doctor Who News Net site, um, and you'll see what's what's being shown down under. Because by the time I get to announce it, it's already happened. Uh, the other thing I did notice on here that uh, is, is kind of applicable to this show is uh, back on the January thirty first, they. Uh, they announced uh, the Aztecs Special Edition DVD details. Uh, it's going to be released March 11th of 2013. Uh, it's a two-disc uh, set, and included on uh, disc two as part of the special features is uh, Galaxy 4, a shortened reconstruction of the missing uh, story of Galaxy 4, um, with, of course, the uh, recovered uh, complete episode. Uh, and I guess they're starting off a whole new um, a section on these discs uh, 
called uh, Doctor Forever Celestial Toy Room. Uh, it's a new five-part series uh, uh, all about the, the, the toys, or action figures, should I say. But yes, um, since we were going to be talking about the Aztecs today, it's, uh, I think it's uh, a neat thing to, to bring this up. Um, there's some interesting stuff on here, but I, I won't go into all the, all the details. But if you check out the uh, Doctor Who News.net site, um, and you'll see the details on the Aztecs Special Edition 2 disc set. Right. Yeah, the one good thing that catches my attention is it's a square world. The uh, Clive Dunn, Michael Benzie, and Patrick Moore little thing. Did <laughs> <laughs> um, this say something on here along the lines of uh, um, restoring the Aztecs a short feature demonstrating the restoration and videoization effects used for the release? So I wonder if they've done uh, done anything of uh, with with some of the uh, effect shots. Uh, I think. Uh, is one in particular everybody's aware of. Um, so it'd be interesting to see if there's something like that. Um, but yeah, this, uh, it looks like it's, it's loaded with uh, uh, lots of uh, features on there. So uh, check it out. All right. Uh, I think that's about that. What's the price point on that? Uh, they don't have that listed on here, unfortunately. Um, probably, probably be about... Uh, Sixteen pounds here in the UK. If it's a double double disc set, right. maybe more full retail. But you're probably able to get it for that. Probably nineteen pounds, and probably able to get it for sixteen. So it could be twenty five dollars, I suppose. Uh, That's not too bad. It's listed on Amazon for twenty nine ninety nine for pre order. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also uh, get it from the BBC America shop for twenty seven ninety eight. <laughs> so a little more expensive. But hey, yeah. Yes, it will be available here, and yeah, it's available for pre-order now. So, what are you waiting for? Go get it! <laughs> All right. If you're interested in joining the Coltum Collective, uh, here's how you do it. If you enjoy listening, why not join the collective and participate yourself? We're on Talkshoe. Call ID five four eight two one. Call in on seven two four 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 four. 7444. This is a US number, area code 724, so do check your calling plan before dialing in. If you have a SIP client, you can call in for free on 66.212.134.192. Or you can connect in directly via the shoe phone client if you have TalkShoe Live installed. Looking forward to hearing you. Alright, and with that, we launch into today's topic. Dave! Yes, Dave is today's topic. <laughs> Oh dear. Yeah, I'm the wise old man. <laughs> well, I'll pretend. I'll pretend. <laughs> you are, actually. I, I can act. <laughs> uh, welcome, everybody. And uh, sorry we made a slight delay there, but all good stuff there. Uh, there's one piece of news that I want to mention. I wanted to mention it at this point in stage because uh, hopefully one of the things that we do when we do do these episodes on a Sunday is that they're up on the feeds, you know, within half an hour or an hour of us ending the recording. And so it is possible that people will be uh, listening to this uh, in time to know that uh, Benjamin Elliott uh, was tweeting to let people know that um, if they miss the Aztecs, it will be repeated again this coming Wednesday at, I think, 4 p.m. Eastern Standard Time uh, on BBC America. So um, Wednesday, what day of the week is that? I mean, what number? 
Yeah, well, count on three from uh, was it the sixth? Is that Wednesday the sixth? So um, look out for that if you've caught it. Uh, now it seems a bit silly for me to mention the spoilers, but uh, I will do that. Uh, what we're going to do is uh, between now and the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, we're hoping to every three weeks or so uh, are maybe in line with. Uh, how BBC America are doing it to keep on track with them uh, revisiting uh, the Doctor. So it's the Doctor, the Doctor's revisited, and uh, obviously the first Doctor is William Hartnell, are portrayed by William Hartnell, and we're going to use uh, the Aztecs as the way into that. Now, what that means is that if, if you in the room haven't watched Aztecs, please be prepared to be spoiled, uh, if you don't mind being spoiled, or if you haven't watched it for a while, um, just be aware of that. If when we come to you on audio and you haven't been able to see the Aztecs, uh, you 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 only vaguely remember it. Uh, obviously, the whole of the first Doctor's timeline is available to you if you want to to digress and talk about it. So we're doing the first Doctor, as portrayed by William Hartnell, but with special emphasis in a review sort of way for the Aztecs. Now, I've got a, a number of other clips, but I think, Ian, that what I will do is I will stick, uh, for the main part, to the actual um, uh, Aztec clips. Uh, so that's that's what I will do now. And uh, we will be going... The, sorry, did you see, before you go in any further, did you see the text in the chat from uh, Jeff and... Let me just check. Oh, is it thir Thursday... Oh, well, ben, I'm only going on what Benjamin tweeted, so thank you. Um, uh, Jeff, do you want to just uh, clarify that if you've seen it somewhere else? Well, actually, it's going to be on twice, uh, this this Wednesday. Uh, oh, so that's not wrong. Right, okay. And Thursday morning at 3 a.m. if you're up at that hour. Right. Oh, and Cy Bob's put, and also on before the second Doctor special, on the 24th of Feb at 5pm. So, um, yeah, now, um, obviously, uh, our next... Uh, oh, well, we're, we're, we're doing Cultum on the 24th, so we're, it, we will put up on the feeds when, when we're doing it. But keeping in line with the, those, we're going to actually use that to sort of uh, uh, peg our little uh, reviews to it. So I'm going to play the first clip. It is a rather long clip, this first one, and then we'll go to Mike. Look at that! Yeah, it's an Aztec mask. He must have been a priest. Well, the Aztec who Mexicans, we must be on Earth again. I wonder what year it is. Well, he must have died around 1430, I should think. How do you know that? All these things belong to the Aztec's early period. Well, that's what I call really knowing your subject. Ah, well... That was one of my specialities, Susan. What little I know about them doesn't impress me. Cutting out people's hearts. Oh, that was <clears> only one side to their nature. The other side was highly civilized. Well, the Spanish didn't think so. Cortes landed in 1520, didn't he? Mm-hmm. Hey, look, cartoons! They've got bubbles coming out of their mouths. Oh! Hey, Barbara, look! Go too far. It's all right. There's no one here. I think I'll get the other. Perfect. Woman, how came you here? 
The temple is sacred to the memory of the high priest Yataksa. You trespass and must be punished. Warriors! I don't care if she is interested in them. I told her repeatedly not to go up on a door. Closed. Now, where is this door? Here. Ah, Barbara. Not a sign of her. She was here just now. Hmm. Doctor. Look at this extraordinary city down here. Yes, Tex. They knew how to build. We must be pretty high up here. Place seems absolutely deserted. Yes, I hope you're right, Chesterton. These Aztecs had some rather gruesome habits. I should hate to be carved up on that by some Aztec eye priest. The door! And, of course, this episode aired on the 23rd of May, 1964, uh, preceded by the Keys of Marinus and followed by the Sensorites. Four episodes, 25 minutes each. Uh, so it ended on June 13th, 1964. So, as I say, when we come to you on your turn, uh, if, if you're familiar with the Aztecs, uh, if you want to try and draw out points from the Aztecs as how that, uh, you know, gives a good indication of what it was like watching Doctor Who and the first Doctor. If you want to go outside of that, please feel free to do so. So, Mike, if you'd grace us with your audio, it would be fine to go to you. Okay. Well, uh, when this was broadcast, I missed the first hour. I saw the last two episodes of, of this, and just go ahead and get this out of the way. The BBC broadcast this at 4x3 resolution, and the version they showed was the unrestored version. So for those keeping score, they they went on the, on the cheap side with this, which for those watching on, on you know like widescreen televisions, a 16 by 9 resolution or whatever, uh, you weren't you you saw only part of the frame. The, the top and bottom of the frames were cut off. So you know just technically speaking, the way they broadcast this was not the best. Uh, part of the frame was missing throughout the show, uh, so there was that. But but the the episode itself is. You know, choosing Not something Mike. from the first Doctor era. Go on, go on. What? Can I, I comment I on that? Wrong? Can I comment on that? Yeah. Uh, I, I think on the BBC America High Def channel, they do that with all their four by three shows. It's not just this particular story from Doctor Who that they've done it with. Uh, I know okay. I, I watch Star Trek: The Next Generation sometimes on BBC America, and I have the High Def channel, and they do that with that as well. So. And and I think what they're doing is they're trying to fill as much of the screen of your widescreen television as possible without cutting out too much of the frame. I think that's the reason. That would make sense. Yeah. It, that would make sense with the, the technical reasons there. Right. But, yeah, it was just kind of kind of annoying seeing the top and bottom of the of the frames constantly cut off. Then again, I don't often get to watch BBC America, so I was I was unfamiliar with the fact that they do that somewhat often. 
But yeah, okay. The the episode that we got here, it was interesting going into this. We hearing that the BBC America BBC America was going to rebroadcast story a classic series of stories, one for each Doctor. So then the question becomes, you know, which episodes, which stories are are they going to show for each Doctor? And the Aztecs was an interesting choice because I I'm. I don't know. The Aztecs was never one of my one of the more memorable first Doctor stories for me. But then again, they have what they they had the the actual story started at about nine forty, so they had about two hours two two hours twenty minutes plus adverts. They did take advert breaks during this. Obviously, it's a commercial it's a commercial station, so factor in advert time. Uh, it would have to be one of the shorter stories for the. Of course, the Aztecs has four episodes in it, so you know. Some of the more well-known ones, like we we were discussing discussing here in the pre-show, like the Dalek invasion of Earth is six episodes long. Uh, so, so you know, some of the more well-known ones are are longer, a bit long for the the time slot they have set aside. But the Aztecs was an interesting story. It's, it's one that's available on on DVD. It's a, it's available for streaming on Netflix. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know. This 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 was a good. This was an interesting story. It just wasn't one of the ones that I. Would have chosen as my favorites from the William Hartnell era. I don't know. It was it was kind of slow at, at times, but then again, this is you know it was interesting. Just going from uh, going from the perspective of watching this, I, I as I was watching this, I was checking on Twitter. Uh, you know, as the BBC America was broadcasting this, they had their text overlay on the screen. Not only were they constantly reminding people that yes, you are watching a classic Doctor Who story, which you know, good for them. This is a it's. It's a black and white episode. Not often do the BBC America show black and white or anything from, you know, an older, you know, older episodes like this. So, but what I'm getting at here is the audience for the the Doctor Who audience that has come into the show from the modern era, from uh, the Elkiston, from Tennant era, from even the Matt Smith era. Uh, you know, people like that may know that there is a history for the show, and probably have never seen anything from this early on in the series. So it's a different... So just people who are, who are used to the faster-paced storytelling style of the modern series... You know, I was looking on Twitter. They had the hashtag on the screen, hashtag Doctor Who. And I was going going along, checking, you know, just casually seeing what people's comments on the episode were. And I was not disappointed by... By my expectation of seeing people, you know, modern series fans disappointed by this older story, this original like Hartnell era story, uh, I was seeing all sorts of comments like, "Oh, this is how 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 is this Doctor Who? This isn't Doctor Who. This is this this is slow. This is boring. This is dull. This is you know, seeing comments like that. You know, I expected things like that. It was interesting seeing comments you know like that from." The modern series fans looking back on the classic series. It's what you would expect. And I think someone was going to say something. Speaking as a modern series fan, I didn't find it boring at all. <laughs> I found it fascinating, but we'll get into that more as my time progresses. Yeah. But as as for this story, you know, it was a, a decent William Hartnell story it was again. It was going back to you know the historical drama, and this is something that we don't get with Doctor Who nowadays. Historical adventures on Earth with no alien involvement whatsoever. It's something that left the show 
with I think that the Highlanders in the Second Doctor era was the last purely historical adventure. Uh, we had what Black Orchid in the Fifth Doctor era, which is the closest, but still mm-hmm. alien involvement. There was a historical adventure with no outside alien intervention, alien foe or whatever. Uh, well, there was no alien involvement, Black Orchid. Oh. That's why I mentioned it then. Okay, so there wasn't. That's why it came to mind. Uh, but yeah. It, it was it was it was what it was it was it was you know something of its time and it was well, either like way the it was crusade nice. and things like that as well yeah i guess what i'm getting 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 to is it was nice seeing you know original series doctor who on bbc america it's just i don't know the aztecs was an odd kind of an odd choice to go to but uh, that's all i have to say for now well let me just um read what it says on my I've got the original DVD version of um, it, and and this is how they sort of um, put this episode, I suppose, in in the uh, in the range of Doctor Who. Um, the early eight days of Doctor Who saw the series evolve its storylines around two main genres: historical and futuristic stories. The futuristic concepts of the series became the dominant force in the show's storytelling arsenal. But historic tales phased out of the former shortly after Patrick Troughton took over the title role. The historical tales, while never unpopular with the programme's audience, did often score relatively low viewing figures for the time. This, by the way, got nearly 7.5 million. Um, But for the general economies of scale that early Doctor Who had to contend with, uh, means that nearly 40 years after it was made, the Aztecs, stands up as a piece of TV drama far better than its futuristic contemporaries. Whilst Doctor Who struggled to portray the far future on a tight budget, the BBC acquitted itself admirably with this historical drama, and the Aztecs, uh, uh, this drama, uh, is this drama of the highest order, uh, according to uh, the bump, of course, on here. And, um, of course, uh, historical was easier to, I suppose, get, a little bit looking right. Uh, futuristic is always dif- difficult, isn't it? Do you go the sort of for the for the white, clean um, hospital look? Do you go for the grubby, you know, uh, um, inside of a, a submarine type look or whatever? Anyway, thanks for that. We'll go into Ken after I played the second clip from the Aztecs. And we are your servants. That's right. Charming. <laughs> well, it's very useful for us, Doctor. It means we can go into the tomb any time we want to, get into the TARDIS and leave. We can't. It only opens from the inside. The incarnations can come out, but human beings can't go in. You must find out how that door opens. That's one thing you mustn't do. As you talk, sir, you're supposed to know everything. If the Aztecs decide you're not what you're supposed to be, then we shall all die. Great spirit of your attack, sir. I, Tazoxo, High Priest of Sacrifice, salute you. As you said, Chesterton, the local butcher. I acknowledge the High Priest's greeting. For many days the rain god has looked away from us, and the land withers and our people groan. We have prayed that the land may again be bountiful, and this day we honor Tullock's name. When the sun's fire first touches the horizon to the west, the people will stand before the temple in obedience to our commands. We humbly beg, great spirit, that at that time the people shall see you and know that their suffering draws to an end. Then Barbara will appear and down will come the rains. I shall do as the high priest requests. We also beseech you, great spirit, to permit your handmaiden and your servants 
to move freely among our people. O oh, great spirit, grant us this our wish that we may be your eyes and ears among the people to do our best and serve in all our interests. The aged servant of Yataxa speaks with wisdom. My handmaiden remains with me. The others may do as you wish. He shall await you. <laughs> A wonderful performance, my dear. Congratulations. We now have everything we want, exactly. We do? Yes, you and Susan here in safety, and Ian and I outside finding out about the tomb. Yes, it sounds all right, but I don't think we should take our eyes off those two for oh, a second. Oh, I shouldn't find them. They're far too busy timing their miracle. What miracle? Presenting Barbara to the public one second before it rains. <laughs> I think they could do with a perigee there. But uh, we've got Ken, so let's go to Ken. Yes. Now, are we also going to discuss the nice documentary about the first Doctor before the show? Could I say a few words about that? Absolutely, Ken. I mean, okay. you know, you know, Ian and myself's approach to uh, the Colton Collective, it's what people want to bring to the show. All right. I First, I, I have to give this big applause to... BBC America for even attempting this. They inundated, I wouldn't say inundate, but the entire history has been 9th, 10th, and 11th Doctor. We're lucky if anything previous to that was anything more than a blip. So by doing this once a month and having a documentary with the episodes, they're making it something special as we're enjoying the 50th anniversary countdown. Now, the documentary beforehand, it's what's so nice about it was you had people like David Tennant and Stephen Moffat, John Barham and producer Carolyn Skinner. But even better, you had William Russell played Ian and Peter Purvis who played Stephen Taylor. So, that's great. Um, I would have loved if um, they would would have had you know some more people you know uh, you know talking about it. Maybe someone like Toby Haydock or someone. But you know, um, it was interesting the things covered in it little mini documentary. It was good to see Gaiman on there too. What was that, Kobo? It was good to see Neil Gaiman on there too. Yeah, Neil Gaiman was there. It was fantastic. Huh? You know, yeah, he was he was mentioning how. Uh, William Hartnell uh, scared the heck out of him when he was a kid. <laughs> that was that was the whole feeling. I, I could understand that. Um, what was interesting were the omissions in the documentary. A lot of companions weren't covered. I, I know it's a time factor. Uh, it was a brief documentary. But what I found strange, this would have been a great opportunity to show the Blue Peter clip of the 10th planet to show the regeneration. It would be nice if in each documentary they showed a clip of regenerations to to give the, the new fans a taste of what everything was like. Unless, unless they're planning that with the second doctor, Possibly. and maybe that'll be in the documentary itself that they'll show that. You know, but what they had, you know, just... Great applause for them. It was, you know, nicely put together. You know, nice narration. They could have just, you know, laid the episode on everyone, and it was it was great having, uh, 
you know, Stephen Moffat uh, introduce it. That gave it a nice feeling, too. I wonder if he's going to do all of them. But on, on to the story. If I was a kid, and this was my first introduction to Doctor Who, I wouldn't be talking about it now. Not that it wasn't a good episode. It wouldn't have grabbed me. I would have liked something more like Fireball XL5 or Supercar or something at the time, a, a bit more jazzy. You know, um, Twilight Zone was around the same time. I would have liked something a little... I, w- I would have liked a Dalek episode or, or something like The War Machines. So it, it is an odd choice uh, to show maybe, maybe it, that it was a uh, four-episode story had a lot to do with it, but it, it is interesting showing uh, the new fan what a, what a purely historical episode is like. Um, it was know. more true, do you not think, though, to at least the first Doctor's, you know, are the, at least the intended w- direction that the show right, was going to go. the intent of the what, series, to be educational, yeah. um, not even, uh, not an insult, but saying it's for children, but something that will educate and uh, also uh, be entertaining at the same time. Um, What I found so interesting was they had the moral question writ so large in this, uh, you can't mess with time. You cannot change uh, something that's going to happen. This culture is doomed it has to remain that way. Sacrifices have to remain. Um, Barbara being a teacher, and this is uh, her forte, this time period. So the whole crux of it is she they think she's a goddess and the reincarnation of a goddess, and she wants to use this power to change history so that when the Spaniards come, uh, they'll spare the Aztecs. And the doctor, dead set against this, saying, you must let the sacrifice happen. These people must die. And this is something as striking as, I mean, later in the Pompeii episode or, or the great uh, Star Trek episode, A City on the Edge of Forever, where Kirk has to uh, let Edith Keeler die, oh, or all man. history will come unraveled. He has to pay that price. And it's a good character episode. It, it really, William Hartnell is very good. We get to see uh, him being flirtatious as much as he's ever going to be. Uh, we see him unintentionally married to a very wonderful Aztec woman of great intelligence and beauty. And that that's, uh, he doesn't know uh that drinking that uh, cup is going to lead to that. Um, it all, yeah. It uh, between you and me, it only amounts to a hill of beans. But uh, yep, yep, that's true. That's Mike, true. Mike has put in text. At least in using this story, it meant they had the original companions in, which I think is an important point. Thank you, Mike. That is true because they could have watered it down. You, you had um, Ian who's the heroic companion, but he's also the educated companion, and he's in the Indiana Jones uh, 
uh, role in this episode and, and to the point that he's facing a trained killer. Um, the sets were rudimentary. I, I, the TARDIS shot in the beginning, I hate to say it is laughable, and I usually, you know, turn a deaf eye, ear, nose, and throat, whatever, because of budget. But it, it was it was kind of bad. But they're under the gun when they do these episodes, and so I, I forget about that. It's a really good character episode. It's a really good William Hartnell episode. It's good showing Ian and Barbara. Um, Susan doesn't have much to do in it. Evidently, she was uh, off for a couple episodes. I don't know if it was illness or other commitments. I'm not sure. But uh, she was very limited in this episode. So it's it's not a good Susan well, episode. She was a low status, wasn't she, for the time? But, Darth, do you want to come in on something? Yeah, please, Darth. I, I was just going to say, you were talking about the, the TARDIS prop at the very beginning of the episode. Yeah. I, I wouldn't charge that against the Aztecs. Uh, and against Crockett and, you know, the, okay. this particular production, because don't forget, that is the last shot of the Keys of Marinus. Okay, okay. So, yeah, yeah I mean, it is representative of, 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 you know, some problems with special effects in the day, and you can certainly see similarly crappy TARDIS exteriors in, say, the Romans or whatever. Yeah. But um, it, okay, the but TARDIS story. was, well, no, that's the real full-size prop. Okay, oh, so, right. yeah, um, but it, it's highly variable in this period. You know, the, yeah. the TARDIS model. Uh, sometimes it looks really bad, like it does at the end of Cave and Marinus in the beginning of the story. Um, sometimes it looks pretty decent. Um, uh, it just depends on what story you're getting, and and this goes down to the sort of overall. I guess you might say problem of the way that the uh, BBC produce things in this period, and that is, you know, you have a department of special effects, and you're not talking about, like, the the situation today where you have the mill or whoever, and they are hired pretty much for the whole season to do stuff, and they have a budget, and, you know, they're able to get on with things and to have matching between different episodes and you know, to create a library of special effects that they can put together. Back then, it was, you know, each individual episode had its own team of people. Uh, not episode, but each individual serial had its own team of people. And each team might have a different approach to yeah. what's going on. So Sometimes it will be feast or famine, depending on budget exactly. constraints. Or, or, or not just budget constraints, but also just the talent of the people involved. And whether right. or not they really... Some people got put onto Doctor Who and they really hated it. And so they were like, whatever, I'm just going to do what I have yeah. to do. And some people really liked it and they did more than they had to do. So it uh, depends. Yeah. Um, again, the episode... Um, not a complex story. Basically, TARDIS crew arrives. TARDIS member mistaken as being a goddess have to fight their way out. The importance, again, you have an episode that's, I would say, linked to Genesis of the Daleks in the sense of the big moral question. And for a show, 1964 primarily educational, uh, again, with the quote-unquote for children, family hour, 
to raise interesting moral educational questions and to look at an entire culture, something very different from what the people were, were watching, very different from British culture, and to go and say, well, the necessity, and, well, there's small changes because you have basically uh, the forces of order and the forces of chaos, um, Otlock, um, the good high priest um, uh, versus uh, the crazed butcher. I don't, I can't even pronounce his name. Tiatoxel, I'm guessing, is is how it might be said. Yeah. Um, so you you have these whole varying viewpoints, and you can look at that socially. You can look at that politically. So, I mean, there's a lot of nice threads in the episode. And again, it goes back to someone sticking with this and the viewer going, William Hartnell is really fun to watch. And he's really an interesting actor. And that's, I think, uh, the really entertaining good thing about that episode. Watching, watching him look the way his eyes, the flashes of anger... Uh, his his uh, romantic interludes and kindness uh, to her to um, I I don't remember the character's name but um, the one who uh, knew who built the the um, place of serenity whose son now is the the great warrior that uh, Ian then has to face. But um, it's again. It, it's maybe, maybe it is a very interesting one to start with because we'll get to Daleks in another episode. We'll we'll get to science fiction and fantasy and flights of fancy. But this is showing historically. Maybe this is a better choice uh, just on me talking about it that I that I would have thought. It, it may it may not be may not be the doctor who I want. It might be the doctor who I need, you know. And historically, for the fiftieth anniversary, maybe it's a good representation uh, that they're doing it. And uh, I look forward to every month them doing it. And um, good show, BBC America. I, I uh, hope that the specials are shown in England. And, uh, you know, I, I, w- I wonder if there's an expanded version, even, um, because, because it, it seemed like there was so much more to say about the first Doctor, and it was just a matter of, of time. But, um, but I hope we get special. I think we'll get specials with all of them. I, I think they'll do it uh, for everyone. But okay. it would be nice if they were an hour long. That, that's That's my vote, but... You know, I'm, I'm not going to complain. Uh, Three-hour uh, time slot for Doctor Who, and Doctor Who coming back on March 30th. Uh, we're living good, I think. Thank you very much oh, yeah. indeed. Um, we'll we'll go to Como in a moment, if we may. Um, it, uh, Jeff, who's muted, some doctor had put in while you were talking that uh, Carol Amford was on holiday. I think she took a two. Uh, took a two-week break, so some of her things were pre-taped, 
of course there were a couple of fight scenes in this that were were also filmed as well um during it but um thanks Jeff. yeah we'll, we'll we'll go to jeff we're all right we're going kobo and darth before we get to you but hopefully you can keep on audio and listen let me play a clip and then we'll go to kobo thus shall my enemies fall real enemies can hit back i have no fear of death perhaps not the dead never win how would you attack i should use more cunning surprise my enemy this also i can do <laughs> this is all i need to win a victory with your son needs magic to know your enemy's weakness isn't magic it's common sense what weakness have i that is vulnerable to your thumb you'll be surprised oh i won't kill you this time not this time ixter you mock the arts of war i defy you to harm me pick up your club Don't worry, you'll be all right. Oh, Doc, there is a t- No, he sleeps. Your Texas servant won the victory with his thumb. You saw the blow? There was no blow. He fought with his thumb. Tell him to have a good rest when he wakes up. Where do you go? For a walk. Yeah, um, I think, Darcy, yeah, I'm talking about the second fight. That definitely has a, a filmic look on it. Uh, perhaps I shouldn't have said pre-film, but filmed. Um, in actual fact, uh, it's one of the goofs on the actual thing because the camera panned to follow them, and you could see um, the end edge of the stage and part of the 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 the, the understructure of the stage was showing. Hopefully, on the uh, the the upcoming new DVD release, they'll CGI that out. But um, yeah, I shouldn't have said. I didn't mean pre-filmed, but I think the the, the big fight sequence was actually um, filmed. Anyway, let's go to Kobo. Um, what was really interesting to me was seeing Ian Chesterton being the leading man and the Doctor playing almost a secondary role. But apparently, that wasn't odd back then no and and, and with the uh, second doctor and Stephen Stephen played a similar sort of uh, you know strong character which is why if you listen back to some of the old pod shots and that you'll hear Lewis uh, and myself and, and others as well bemoaning and, and Darth I think as well that there hasn't been more strong male leads as companions it it wasn't odd in a bad way it was just odd speaking as a new series fan to not have the doctor in a primary role and William Hardnell is a bit of a shock if you're not used to him because he is a bit rougher than some of the other doctors and In some senses, David Tennant is right, but in some senses, David Tennant's comments in the special were wrong. He is, in some ways, the most jarring of all the 
doctors to a modern series fan, but there are recognizable hardened traits in Matt Smith, in David Tennant. And to I would say the six doctors probably the more like the first doctor in that was it irascible or irascible, whichever way you say the word. Rathalon. <laughs> Sorry, you knew that was coming. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it was just really fascinating to hear all this stuff about the first Doctor and. My first exposure to the first Doctor was actually his last episode, The Tenth Planet, because I obtained all the second Doctor stories plus The Tenth Planet, so that was my first exposure to William Hartnell. And that was a lot more of a traditional Doctor Who episode, I suppose. Um... I don't think I would have liked William Hartnell had the Aztec had the Aztecs been my first and only exposure to the First Doctor, because it is a simply jarring story by modern standards. I mean, I mean it was really good, but it was just really jarring. Somebody with modern disabilities. I mean, I can see why those people would say it was boring, but you gotta look at the t- look at the times and look at the original remit of the show. And in that sense, it's extremely well done. Um, but to somebody that comes in expecting. A monster of the week. It's not exactly what they're looking for. But I wasn't expecting monster of the week. I was ex- expecting something like this, and I thought it was very, very well done. I mean, I wouldn't exactly give it five out of five Tardis groans, but I'd give it like a solid three and a half to four. And I thought the title sequence was really, really interesting, and Stephen Moffat's comments that not a lot of British television shows at the time had an actual title sequence, and I thought you brought up some good points before the recording started, Dave, about what title sequences of that time were actually like. Yeah, they, they weren't particularly good. I mean, uh, they, they were basically... Uh, there was one of two options. They actually either made a, uh, a, they didn't even pretend, and they would have like a an easel with like blackboards with actual things on, and they'd actually, you'd actually almost see a hand putting them on. Or in this case, in Doctor Who, I think it was on a a, a scrolling roll, rolling scroll. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, where it's being wound across uh, uh, up up the screen. Um, one of the things, by the way, with the the DVDs, I think um, some people wonder why, you know, the when you buy the DVDs, the the although the Aztecs is still in four by three on the DVD, um, you know, they still redo the actual um, the the credits and the uh, the captions. Those are redone. 
but if you look, you can see almost the, the superimposed over the shaky ones, if you know what I mean. Uh, I'm not the best person to talk about things like this, but um, yeah, um, I, I, I don't know, thinking about that, whether I will buy the new DVD version when it comes out. Probably will, because of the the fact that it's a two-disc version. It's got other things, and uh, they may well have CGI'd it. And I do feel for, for Jeff when he was talking about you know, BBC America and the high definition, you know, uh, zooming up. And Mike said it, they were they were they zoomed up. Um, it's one thing to take a four, uh, a four by three old program and zoom it up, if you actually what they call project it, and you actually have the film the TV virtually refilm it by scanning. In other words, when the pe- when the action's towards the top of the screen. You show the top of the screen in 16 by 9, and if the action's more to the bottom, you show that. So you're virtually panning and scanning as you re reframe individual scenes. But if they're basically just showing the four by three and just taking an arbitrary midpoint, then it's going to be, um, you know, poor. But obviously, I haven't seen the BBC America version of it. I, I rewatched my DVDs. And one more thing I wanted to comment on was, uh, does anybody know if John Berryman's comments on the gunfighter were in any way accurate? Um, I'm talking to the people that have actually seen the special here. Well, uh, what's, can what's we... the comment? Oh. Um, basically, the, the sing-along scene in the um, saloon was the weirdest thing ever to happen in Doctor Who. Well, that's an opinion. It can't be right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's something that tickled him a lot. He thought it was out of so place. Funny. He said it was really out of place and really jarring. Mm. <laughs> a bit like a Star Wars, a little bit like a Star Wars bar in uh, Doctor Who. Captain Jack and Al- uh, Alonzo. Uh, and... Um, yeah, the Ballad of the Last Chance Saloon is definitely something that is um, uh, controversial amongst fans. Some people really hate it, and there are some who actually like it. Uh, I, I, it's probably done too much, but the idea of it is not horrible, and it's certainly something that you occasionally see in in westerns. It seems to go with the genre. Um, it's it, there are a number of westerns where somebody will will sing a song in a bar or somewhere or out on the trail or whatever, and and then that music becomes a sort of light motif that's thrown that's threaded throughout the rest of the story. Um, I guess the problem that some people would find with the, the the ballad here is that it's fully sung many times. I don't know how many times, but a lot. Um, and that it's probably overdone. If they had, you know, only done it maybe once an episode, um, then I don't think people would see it as too problematic. I think they would say, "Oh yes, this is a style of a western." You know, this is just it goes along with the campfire song. You know, um, I, don't, I don't mind it. Certainly, I don't mind. I don't. I don't mind the scene in which it's actually sung 
by the characters where it's, you know, Dodo and Steven actually singing it. Don't mind that at all because then it's just, you know, they're auditioning and, and they're doing it under duress. It's actually kind of a good scene. The The problem comes when you've got the Linda Barron um, version of it that is a part of the, you know, the soundtrack that the, the extra diegetic soundtrack um, that the characters can't hear. There, it's like, oh my God, how many times are we going to hear this thing? So the, so the character was, so the characterization wasn't all that odd within the context of the show. The fact that they look, there's a scene in which they are at gunpoint, forced to sing the song uh, to prove that they are entertainers. Because they, their disguise in the era is that they are entertainers and that they can sing and everything. And so they're forced to sing this song and the sheet music just happens to be on the piano. And that's fine. I mean, I don't see how anybody could object to that. The problem is that there's another version of the song which has a seemingly infinite number of verses to it um, that is sung, you know, once every, I don't know, Dave, what would it be? Five minutes? Six minutes? It certainly is. It's repeated enough that they released an album <laughs> of just this song, and and I mean album. It's not a single. It's an album. I think that that you know really, it's at least a long play album. Oh my god. Uh, uh yeah, and, and it's sung by the woman who uh, you would probably recognize as being the the sales lady in Closing Time. Um. Wow. Yeah, but she also played Captain Rack in Enlightenment in Fifth Doctor's era. Um, oh yeah, and, and it's sung well. You can't complain about the actual voice of it, and you can't really complain about the lyrics. The lyrics are clever and they're engaging. Again, the real thing is it's just played a hell of a lot throughout the episode. I just wondered about that, and I just found that part of it really interesting. Right. I can see why Merriman would would object to it. I suppose you know because he comes from a background in musical theater, and you know it's a part of his career really to know when to sing and when not to sing. And you can clearly recognize in that in that piece that it is oversung, it is overused, it, it's you know, hammered to death. And he would a part of me uh, thinks though Linda a part Barron. of me yeah Linda Barron, Linda Barron. Yeah. a part of me thinks that actually at the end of the day. Barrowman is a little bit jealous that he didn't get to sing it. That's what I kind of think, because he's so camp. It's right up his alley. Yeah, it would be right up his alley. He probably wants to do Captain Jack the Musical. I'm sure he would. That would be hysterical, actually. Kickstarter, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> Okay, are you done at the moment, Cabo? Yeah, okay, that, was, that was it. Let me uh, go ahead and uh, play this. Oh, I've got the most ghastly toothache. So he goes to the gunslinging OK Corral to be taken care of by a dentist who happens to be a gunslinger himself, right? But then what happens? You've got Peter Purvis, the character of Steven, and all of them end up going off and having a big kind of sing-along around a piano and it's the weirdest thing that ever goes on in the world of Doctor Who. I'll hold him for you. Hey, now come on, will you? Shut think? up and sing, friend. You wait till I see the doctor. He got us into this. What's the trouble? 
nothing. We just choosing a song. Here's one. Let's hope the piano knows it. The Ballad of the Last Ten Saloon. Play, maestro. And there you go. <laughs> Yeah, uh, and welcome guest 10, just in case you're confused there, we are talking about uh, the Doctor, uh, Doctor Who, the Doctor's Revisited, uh, William Hartnell, but we're referencing mostly the Aztecs that was shown on uh, BBC America, but um, that was a, a, an aside reference to um, the gunfighters there. So, Kobo, uh, are you done at the moment? Yeah, I'm done. Okay, well, I'll play another clip and then we'll go to uh, Darth. You are the old servant of your tax, sir. Uh, oh. <sighs> yes, sir. Yes, indeed, uh, I am. My yes. father built the temple. Oh, indeed, yes. Well, I find the entrance to the high priest's tomb a particularly fine piece of work. Few temples have an entrance like it. Oh, yes, of course. Uh, yes, yes. Is he kept that secret, didn't he? He has drawn it. Really? Well, I, I wonder if it's at all possible that I might see the drawings, hmm? Can a humble warrior deny the request of your taxes, servant? <laughs> I will bring it to you after sunset, if the gods are willing. Oh, I, I don't see why not. Hmm? Tonight, at sunset, I have to meet another warrior in combat. Oh, I hope uh, not to the death. Hmm? No. But defeat would mean disgrace. No man could look upon me or speak to me for many days. Yes, I see. My opponent has been selected. I know his name, and I fear defeat. And what weapons do you use? Only my hands. My strength lies in the use of a spear or a club. Mm, really? Indeed, yes. Ah, dear, dear, dear. Uh, I would have loved to have seen those drawings. No more than I desire a victory. Yes, well, may I suggest that we uh, assist each other? Hmm? I thank the older servant of your taxa. Uh, yeah, of course, uh, that's uh, John Ringham playing the other character there in that clip. Uh, he was in lots of things like... Uh, was in all sorts, really. Um, uh, he was also in the, the Smugglers, Colony in Space, uh, and he also appeared in lots of things like Zed Cars, Target, Ber Bergerac, the Tripods, uh, the Avengers, Catweasel, Pompeii, so uh, a real uh, British character actor there. Okay, Darth, please. Well, I have to say, unfortunately, it's uh, sad that we're talking broadly about the, the Hartnell era and yet focusing on the Aztecs. And I think the Aztecs is probably the worst story of the entire era. I loathe it, to be honest with you. Um, well, spread your wings. We're, we're happy to listen. Yeah. Um, I I think it's in a in a special part of hell that I've actually reserved for The Beast Below as well. It is... Um, I know how bad that. <laughs> yeah, it, 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 it suffers really the same problems of The Beast Below in that it is deeply, deeply logically flawed. And it's so flawed, it's just hard to enjoy any part of it. Um, but I, I do want to talk about the good things about it first, because there are some things that are, are bright spots and that should really be highlighted. First of all, one of the reasons that I think that they might have chosen the Aztecs uh, to put on BBC America is because um, of all of the stories that involve the original crew, this one is undoubtedly the best directed, undoubtedly. Uh, John Crockett's the director here is the only thing that he did aside from one episode of uh, Marco Polo where he spelled Morris Hussein for a week. Um, and 
John Crockett was a fascinating guy, and I, I really wish that he had done more. He clearly had the approval and the backing of Verity Lambert, who, who loved the direction of the episode, and you can see why. He's a guy who came up from uh, the design side, um, which is, at the time, a fairly unusual way to get into the director's course that uh, you had at the BBC at the time. Um, and and you can see it. And in Verity Lambert, there's a big quote, I think, in Doctor Who magazine, what is it, 266, where they Andrew Pixley does his number on this thing. Um, and Verity Lambert says, you know, he was a painter, and you can you can totally see that that ethic um, comes through. the The shots here, um, it's weird because I, I don't think that most people will recognize it as a well directed episode, and the reason is because of that horrible. I mean, let's not even varnish it in any way. Horrible fight scene uh, that's in. It's episode one or episode two, I can't remember. But the the initial confrontation between Ixta and Ian has got to be just about... No, it is. It is the worst fight scene, I think, in the history of Doctor Who. It's, it's closely rivaled by uh, a scene in um, the Romans where, again, Ian is f- fighting, uh, and that time in a gladiator's uh, arena. But, I mean, if you're looking for the definition of what not to do. It's going to be episode two. I'm sorry, it is episode two. Um, yeah, they, they have a small skirmish in episode one where he uses his thumb and then they have oh, the... Right, the and then they have yeah. the big thing in, in The Warriors of Death. And and the thing is, it, it, that's what people remember about the episode and that's what people remember about the direction. But if you look at the direction and what the camera is doing and understanding the limitations of these huge cameras that you know had to be pushed around by you know, incredibly strong grips. Um, and, you know, that you had to worry about the the wires, crossing the wires, and they were very immobile cameras. But the the story here really has, a for the time, an incredibly fluid um, motion of cameras. And, and you have these elaborate shots that are set up where, you know, sometimes uh, you've got Barbara in the back of a row of, of warriors and you know, incredible depth of field things. And then you actually have some some scenes where, uh, you know, maybe you got Barbara in the foreground and you got uh, Hartnell in the background and Hartnell is out of focus, which of course it would be because they didn't have great lenses back then, but it works well. So in in a way, Crockett is using the, the disadvantages of the camera that he has in order to get really dramatic shots. And there are times where obviously his, his reach exceeds his grasp where you know he runs into scenery as we've already talked about, um, uh, and, and there's some in episode one. Uh, you know, there's a particular moment where either Hartnell missed his key light or the camera didn't move to the right position or whatever because it was it was moving over from somewhere else. But there's there's a scene where he's Hartnell's talking to Barbara. Barbara's on the throne, and Hartnell's completely obscured. Um, so there are some errors that happen, but they happen because Crockett is really trying to push out the boat here. Um, and, you know, doing some things that are highly prescient. I mean, if you look at Temple of Evil, episode one, and you look at the end of Temple of Evil, how does it end? It ends exactly like the snowmen. The episode we just saw, it it ends like the snowmen of you've got this guy turning the camera 
mm-hmm. speaking directly in the camera and the camera swooping in to get him looking directly in, which is really weird, a breaking of the third wall. But you got John Ringham, you know, totally breaking the third wall to be your cliffhanger, just exactly like what happens at the end of The Snowmen. So uh, Crockett is very interesting for this period. It's really sad that he only did the one. Um, and the other great thing about Crockett is that we know he loved Doctor Who because there are records of him uh, sending them a note to David Whitaker, an apparently extensive note to David Whitaker, saying, hey, look, I've so enjoyed doing the Marco Polo episode and doing this stuff uh, with the Aztecs that I want to give you some story ideas for things that we can do in the future. And um, it, all of the story ideas, except for, I think, one or two, eventually got made into Doctor Who episodes. Most of them uh, got made in the Hartnell era. So we don't... And, and, one of them got made. Highlanders apparently was, you know, the, the basic idea of doing a Bonding Prince Charlie episode um, that came from him. And uh, then, you know, some of his ideas were picked up later by Big Finish and have just now been released or whatever. Now, we don't I, I don't want to say that, you know, the memo that he sent is the reason that we got, for instance, the time meddler or the reason that we got the smugglers or the reason that we got the Highlanders or the reason that we got the wrath of the Iceni. Um, but it is interesting that everything just about that he um, sent to David Whitaker in 1964 eventually became the kernel for an idea that got produced, which I, I think is just fascinating and beautiful that somebody at this stage uh, loved Doctor Who because, you know, don't forget this Doctor Who was definitely the bastard child at this point in history of the BBC because, you know, you had all these people who were upset that it was a children's show being made at the in the adult drama section um and you had people who were assigned to it who really kind of didn't want to be assigned to it and then you have this guy who who may be the first um director who really said you know what i love this this is great um uh, well we know Morris Hussain likes doing the second we know that he liked doing the first episode of, um, you know, An Unearthly Child. Didn't really like doing The Tribe of Gum. And we know that he did like doing Marco Polo because that was a great story. So I don't want to be too unfair to what is saying. But it, it still is great that that Crockett just really liked doing Doctor Who at this time. So, I, you know, huge praise for him. Huge praise for uh, Barry Newberry, the designer, who, you know, this this has got to be one of the best, looking um, serials in terms of production design up to this period. And Daphne Dare, of course, with those elaborate costumes and and not too historically inaccurate uh, costumes. I mean, we know that the Aztecs would have been considerably more naked than they are portrayed in this episode, but still going with the basic idea of all of the, you know, Things that you know are just uh, pelts of animals and and the animal motifs that are in the design. We know that that is pretty accurate. And of course, this is a time before the internet. This is a time before people in Britain could have known too much about the history of Mexico, really. And um, so to have gotten as close as this and as interesting as this, and for it, it, it to all work kind of visually uh, and to suspend your disbelief about where you are, that's a great thing. Um. Another, they're also, uh, historically, the episode is kind of important in the history of Doctor Who because 
Um, this is where we, Verity Lambert starts to win her battle with the BBC. And specifically with the BBC, who would it be? The, the facility scheduler, right? <laughs> this is a, a well-documented battle. Uh, that if you dig into the archives of the BBC, you find that Verity Lambert and a number of other people, including Rex um, Tucker, who directed The Gunfighter, but was actually the first producer of Doctor Who before uh, Verity Lambert got there, uh, you know, had, had said, look, there's no way we can do this show in Lime Grove, Stu- Lime Grove Studio D. It's too small. It's on the second floor. Moving the sets up and down just doesn't work. Plus, the fire sprinklers keep going off. The sets are ruined. The costumes are ruined. We have to reset after the fire sprinklers go off. And they go off because, you know, we've got these huge lights there that are from, you know, the 1910s or whatever. You know, it's a terrible situation. And so she had been fighting this pitch battle and hadn't won it for about six months. And then finally, uh, on May the 8th, 1964, um, she gets assigned to BBC Television Center Studio 3 to do Warriors of Death. And they do it again in Bride of Sacrifice, which is episode three. But then they're promptly moved back to Lime Grove Studio for the rest of the series. Um, so whatever. They, a little bit of a success. But the reason I'm kind of going into that is because of this aforementioned horrible fight scene that unfortunately Crockett's image gets labeled with. And the deal is this. Lime Grove Studio D is where the guy thought he was going to be shooting this thing. It's where he did his camera scripts for... It's, he fully believed he was going to be in this Studio D. Studio D is one half the size of TC3, Television Center 3, right? So all right. of a sudden, he, he's got this fight that's blocked out for being done in Studio D. But he gets moved to TC3. And there are all sorts of problems when they move the scenery over. Uh, Barry Newberry, there's a big story about how he had to do these repairs because people split apart his um, his designs to try to make them fit into that larger area. There are problems with the cyclorama that was going on behind because the cyclorama that they had done for Studio D was you know, only 15 feet across, and really they needed to have it 30 feet across to go into the Studio D. Totally big size, right? So all the camera blocking that they had done, don't forget they're rehearsing, you know, three weeks ahead of time, four weeks ahead of time, whatever. Um, All of that blocking that they did was for the wrong size of a room. And so the reason that it looks so limp is in part because they're, you know, having to sort of make it up on the fly because they're, they're, the people are much further away from each other than they should be, the cameras. You know, it just doesn't... The whole thing just is wrong for that room. So, if you know, for those people out there who primarily remember Aztecs as having this bad fight scene, and there are a lot of them, um, you know, don't judge the direction for that fight scene because really, that's... You should give Crockett a mulligan for that, Totally. Um, but that doesn't help when you're trying to introduce the episode to a modern audience because modern audience doesn't know any of that, and all that matters is what gets on screen, and what gets on screen is pretty horrible. So, whatever. Um, and I guess what else is good about the episode? I'm trying to think. Um, I I I like the acting of Hartnell with Kameka. 
I, I you know, it, it goes against the the general assessment of him, especially in season one, of being really gruff and irascible and the whole thing. He's very charming. He doesn't really flub any lines in that period to speak of. Um, and they seem to have a pretty good chemistry. It it it, it works. I don't like the scene. Don't get me wrong. I don't like the the context of the scene and what it's saying in the script. Um, but, you know, given that those were the words that he was forced to say, I think he says them very well. And I think it, you know, makes him out to be a bit of a rogue as Ian later says. And it's, it's, it's really cool to see the doctor actually having an, an interest in a woman. Um, and he clearly does. I mean, there, there, there's no doubt here that this is, romantic it is romantic and he is kind of leading her on and honestly if he had just been able to sort of get away with it and get back into the TARDIS without there being any kind of entanglement from drinking cocoa um (laughs) I I think it would have been you know kind of cool sort of but again I think the script is horrible um and, and and so that is the end of my praise for the Aztecs the stuff that's horrible it begins and ends with the script uh, in, in really every dimension. Um, first of all, <laughs> the script does a thing that the BBC kind of likes to do. And, in, and I think that British people, no offense, Dave, but I think British people like to do with their drama. And it comes from this unnatural attachment to Shakespeare. This and there's there's this belief that when you're talking about or your your subject is people from a long time ago, they must all speak in a really heightened, overly florid English that people just don't do. Well, um, c- can I just jump in on that? You may certainly jump in on that. Um, just uh, only on Friday night on the. Um the, the Graham Norton show, we had um, the British actress who plays Queen Elizabeth a lot, uh, Helen Mirren, yeah. and she's now on, st- uh, She's I think she's on stage, she's mm-hmm. going in a new stage production where she's playing the Queen again, and through quick changes and makeup, she's going to portray the Queen from being a very young Queen all the way through, and she says on that that she has to speak uh the queen's way of talking has changed over the years even her you know very uh clipped and british accent has changed and even helen Mirren says when i even when i started on stage i used to talk very you know queen's english or newsreader english so mm. um admittedly you can argue that that's not the local dialect uh, i remember vividly that um you know it wasn't until the 70s when the um the the comic stand up comic shows came on that you started hearing Liverpoolian accents accents and uh, when the boat came in you heard Sunderland accents and you heard all the different dialects oh. Birmingham ones but in terms of actual performance quote unquote accents um, those were what was called um, is it received English or perceived English? yeah RP yeah, yeah received pronunciation BBC yeah. English. <laughs> Yeah, and I'm not really talking about accent, though. I'm talking about okay. the actual words. I'm talking about the construction of the grammar. Um, I, I accept that it is a convention of British television at the time that uh, actors had to use RP. 
I mean, that was that was what they were taught right. in uh, drama school. But it, it doesn't. If you look at the, the the language that's being used in this episode, and then you or the serial, and you look at the the, the language that comes up in uh, maybe the Sensorice is a bad one to look at, but but look at episode one of Unearthly Child, which is you know set in modern day England, and you look at the way that it's, it's weird. Look at the way that Ian is speaking in Unearthly Child. And then look at the way that he speaks when he is suddenly in the context of these these people from Aztec world, right? I mean, That's he suddenly, a really he, good point. He suddenly uh, well, launches into this really he, – he matches their heightened way of speaking. Um, and so does Barbara. I mean, Barbara just transforms magically into this person who knows how to speak royally, um, which doesn't make any sense. To me, at well, all. She Except that that is her favorite period of history. She says she to Susan. Yes, but it's not his, right, but it's not historically accurate to say that that is, uh, you know, how they would speak. That's not historically well, accurate. Well, at all. No, no, no. She's putting the intonation in there, but the TARDIS is translating it into the correct language. Wow, that's really. Come on now. <laughs> got to well, bring the I mean, translation uh, she, she's, she's doing the royal sort of one does one doesn't one but it's obviously being translated into into the Aztec language which I don't know what it would be called but whatever it, the language is right but I mean, I mean uh, the, the whole point that I, I guess I'm trying to say maybe it's a difficult one to make is that there's no reason to expect that if you were to directly translate what a an Aztec person was speaking, that it would sound like Shakespearean English. <laughs> why would it be that? You know, why would it use that really awkward sentence construction? Um, there's, in fact, there's every reason to believe that it would be much simpler because English has a huge vocabulary compared to most other languages. So, like, like for instance, if they were to go to Poland modern day or or even old Poland or even old Czech Republic or whatever because of the difference in the number of words in the language the 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 way it would render would be much simpler it wouldn't be these it, it would take many fewer words to express in English what you were trying to then express in that language so it just it, it's going completely in the wrong direction anyway it the, would the point is perfectly. I think. Right. Maybe. But I, I suppose the broader point is, you know, not the, this technical one of uh, linguistics, but rather just if you're trying to watch this episode now as a, uh, you know, 20-year-old or whatever, and you encounter this language, I think you're going to be turned off. And the thing is, there's no reason to be turned off. There's no reason that the language should be as impenetrable as this. I mean, look at Shakespeare in Love. The reason Shakespeare in Love was good is because it didn't try to make heightened language except on stage. You know, there was a clear difference between the way the characters were speaking when they were speaking Shakespearean words as opposed to when they were just off stage in a scene with other people, you know? Um, I don't know. It just it doesn't work for me on that level because it, it obfuscates whatever they're trying to say. Um, okay. So there's that. Um, but then the biggest thing is this whole notion of, you know, the tagline, right? You can't change history, not one line. That's what we're ma made to believe. Okay. 
if that's true, <laughs> why does the doctor enthusiastically say, hmm, let me set up a history teacher from the 1960s to be a god? That's going to go over well. I mean, you know, but, why take somebody who is avowedly liberal and put them on the throne of a society that you're trying not to have an impact on? It's well, she was not pretending to be a new god. She was not pretending to be the god Barbara. She was mistaken for a god they already assumed she could have been. So, you know what I mean? He's actually so the point is, they're it. just he's just using their delusions. He's not giving them a, a oh, fake no, god. No, no. Oh, he's no, no, going no. along yes, with. Yes, he is. No, 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 sir. No, sir. Look at episode one again. Look at episode four again. Especially, he is absolutely helping people to believe in the deception. And he, he's telling Barbara, "We've got to keep this deception going." Exactly. Because. Exactly. But they didn't invent it. They, they, they so made the assumption. So that's not the point. That, who cares? The, the point of the episode is you can't change history, not one line. That is what we're supposed to believe. But because he is actively helping in the deception of putting this liberal woman up onto the throne of this culture, he is actively subverting that. He's sending totally mixed signals. Mm-hmm. It didn't change uh, one person's personal timeline. I mean, well, that, and there's and therein lies. But he also the whole knew that she was doomed to failure. So presumably, he would argue that um, you know he knew by doing that that that, that time would sort of if if you were um, yeah. you know it, it, it would find a way. <laughs> I mean, a little bit like that. It's been referenced already the Star Trek episode that um, I think it was Ken that mentioned it that. Um, that, that you try and change things and it just happens in a very slightly different way, but the outcome's the same. Okay. Uh, yeah, no. <laughs> that just doesn't work. I mean, because he's actually... It doesn't agree with what he says, you're right, because he said not one line. Yeah. Not only that, not only that, but it's only her that she cares about, that he cares about, right? Right. Otherwise, what does he do? He sent, He absolutely directly sends Ian off to become the head of their military. That's what the fight between <laughs> him and Ixta yeah. is. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so that's point. not going to change history, is it? No, not at all. Yeah. Then, then he goes off into the you know, Garden of Peace and has a little bit of strumpet, right? Um, and she is clearly a woman of influence, right? She has the ear. Ixta yeah. comes to her for advice, Um She's not they're just the, el- you know, some, the elders, she, really, aren't they? Right. Yeah. She's not a woman in a retirement home that nobody sees. She is the elder, right? Yeah. And and yet he is absolutely influencing her left, right, and center, using her completely, shamelessly, like a hussy, using her. Um, and can, can and, I just, and, 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 I've got to jump in. Go on. Yeah, yeah, can, yeah. What 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 people who may not have seen earlier Hartnell. Would 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 perhaps need to know at this point is he could mm. be ruthless that first doctor. I mean, he's going to cave in um, his skull um, in an earlier episode. He's cave his skull, isn't he? I mean, um, right. um, Ian Chesterton is almost going to brain him at one point, isn't he? I mean, so he's yeah. a, he, he was a, a 
there was a nasty side to this first Doctor. Right. Then, then, oh, then, what's the word? Uh, and the other one where he misleads them when they're going, he pretends that they can't go back to the TARDIS or something because he's seen a city that he, yeah, that that he, he wants Mercury. to go investigate. So he tells yeah. lies about needing some yeah. fuel or something. Yeah, in the Daleks. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's got he's got this sort of deceptive Agenda. side. But that's, yes, and it's weird because you're trying to, and this is what makes this episode so hard for me to like, is because on the one hand... You, it's it's hard to figure out where he is lying, you know, for his agenda, and where he is actually telling the truth. So if he says to Barbara, "You can't change history, not one line," is he lying, or is he not lying? Because he's he's clearly doing some sort of duplicitous action with Kameka, right? He is using her emotion and her affection to get things from her, and it may be innocent, you know, in 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 the way that. The doctor or whoever, or if you're traveling, if you personally are traveling anywhere, you're always nice to people so that they will tell you how to get from point A to point B or give you some sort of information about the local environs. And, and you know, there's that sort of social lubrication aspect to it. But with Kameka, it seems much, much deeper than that. I mean, she, he's really trying to get her to give him the keys to the kingdom in a way, like how to get well, out of there, how to get into the sewers, how to... Um, um, you know that that business in episode four with Altlock and getting Altlock's um, uh, what that seal that gives her the the, the house the, yeah, the yeah. house and the property and all that. I mean, he's really doing a number on her, and especially because you know the moment that he realizes he's engaged to her, he doesn't turn around. At least we don't. No, he does not turn around to her and say, "Look, this can't happen." This abuser he, of that fact. He, he, he really he, doesn't. He, 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 he dumps her. He dumps her hard and cold. Yeah. <laughs> you know, in episode uh, but, four. But, but going on, this other thing mm. is that, that in the later Doctor, we, we have this refinement of uh, some things are fixed, but not everything's fixed. So the because well, the Doctor that some things he can change and others he can't. Now whether that's internalized. At this point, I mean, obviously, it hasn't been written, but I mean, you could argue that the Doctor says that as a simplistic view to his companions when he mm. and himself knows some things are fixed and other things there are, there's a little bit of leeway. Right. And, and this is one of the things that makes this episode really hard um, to watch if you've seen anything after it, anything at all after it. I mean, even as late as, even as early as Space Museum. Space Museum is in total contradiction to this in a lot of ways. Um, and here's the deal. Um, uh -huh. If you look at, again, Doctor Who Magazine 266, great resource for this, you know, with the Andrew Pixley write-up of it. Um, uh, there's a great little uh, thing in there where um, David Whitaker, who's the script editor at the time, and who would, of course, gone over Lucarati's scripts and harmonized them and all that stuff, um, he writes a letter at this time, to explain what's going on with the doctor, right? I'm going to read a part of this because it's, it's crucial to understand. Really? He says, um, skip it on, skip it on. The basis of time traveling is that all things are fixed and unalterable. Doctor Who, and of course by this he means the doctor, because at this point we're calling the yeah. character Doctor Who, is an observer. Where we are allowed to use fiction, of course, is that we allow the doctor and his friends to interfere in the personal histories of certain people from the past. We can get away with this, provided that they are not formally established as historical characters. Now, that's really right. interesting. He's saying, basically, 
if they're little people, we can mess with them. So that's why. That really flies in the that's face why. of you. Of what? What does that fly in the face of? This one. Or lock. No, well, no, that that explains this one. I mean, we're talking about the, the script editor who was in charge of this episode saying, you know, as long as they're little people, and Otlock would be considered a little people because he's not somebody formerly known in history, right? Right. This isn't Montezuma. This isn't Drake. This isn't Shakespeare. This isn't Dickens. This is somebody they made up for this episode. Right. This is somebody they made up for this episode, and that's why he can be screwed with. That's why Kameka can be screwed with. But it does fly in the face of modern <laughs> Doctor Who. Inappropriate? Maybe not. We don't know. We didn't see. There no, are some faded blacks that there. that screwed with it. I'm just saying there are some faded blacks. Um, the, uh, I mean, he is a young man at this point. I would hope something happens. But the, um, the, uh, it flies in the face of RTD. You hit RTD and... Everything after that, including what I think Moffat is doing, is opposed to this notion that little people don't count. There is no way, no way whatsoever, that you can harmonize what goes on in the Aztecs to what goes on in Father's Day, right? What is it that the Ninth mm-hmm. Doctor says in Father's Day? He says, if you change the history of even what the, the the most important people are the little people. The most important people are the ordinary people having ordinary lives, you know, going out on a date and eventually getting married. All of the universe, the entire universe starts to come unhinged because Pete Tyler doesn't die. I mean, Pete Tyler isn't known. He's a nobody. He's worse than a nobody. He's a chancer. He's a Del Boy. He's you know, he's kind of scum in a way. And yet, because he doesn't die, the entire universe starts to come unraveled, and even the doctor himself essentially is wiped out of existence, which is, you can't justify that. You can't rectify that whatsoever with the Aztecs. And I think, you know, even as, you know, somebody's been watching Doctor Who for a long time, I don't like the Aztecs because I can't, I can't understand it. I can't put it into any kind of framework that, that fits with later stuff. And I don't even mean much later stuff. I mean, I've gone all the way to Father's Day there. But if you just go to the Space Museum, you know, the doctor says, oh, yeah, we can't interfere. We can't interfere with the society. And it's not Earth, of course. It's a different planet. But he you know, starts out saying, we can't interfere. And then he says, but maybe we can help incite a rebellion. More or less. I mean, that's not an exact quote. But he's saying, you know, we can't do it directly, but we can maybe help these people who are on this planet, like um, Boba Fett, what's his name? <laughs> the guy that, uh, I forget the character's name, that um, Jeremy Bullock is playing in the Space Museum. But, you know, he, he incites that to change. And then by the time you get to the end of the Hartnell era, I mean, what have you got? You got the doctor saying, sure, Stephen. Go off. Become the leader of this planet. You may now graduate from traveling with me because you have realized, oh, yeah, I can affect the, you know, the lives of people positively. I mean, you look at the Ark. The Ark, they, they land on the Ark and they completely oh, yeah. destroy that civilization. Completely. Completely. I mean, 100% completely destroy that civilization. That's eh, fine. That's the basis of the story. The Ark is the anti-Aztecs. Um, if you look at it really, 
the only thing that I think the Aztecs have done for us is is maybe we can maybe make the argument that the Aztec shows the Doctor at a point in his development where he is most like the Time Lords that he has run away from. So you can maybe say this is what the the Time Lords have taught him. So therefore, he's spewing this language. Never mind that. Susan, who's also a Time Lord, doesn't believe this. Even in this episode, Susan has no qualms whatsoever about changing history. You know, who cares? But the Doctor says, you know, is opposed to changing history here, and maybe that tells us why he, you know, eventually runs away and stays away from from the Time Lords because he doesn't really believe that stuff. He says it, but he doesn't really believe it. And by the time that you get into Fourth Doctor or whatever, ah, there's no holds barred. Leonardo da Vinci, ah, who cares? This is a fake. You know, it doesn't matter. Um, and certainly, you know, as, as you get on into the new series, then you get into this whole debate of there's some things that m- must happen, there are some things that, you know, must never happen, and there are things that you can change whenever you want to. Agatha Christie, yeah, we can change her because it suits this plot. The, the thing that I admire at least about the, the Russell T. Davies, um, you know, slash Gareth Roberts thing of fixed points in time is it's at least intellectually honest. At least it says, we know this is rubbish. This is our hand wave. Go along with us. Whereas the Aztecs, oh my God, it just, it, it contradicts itself. It, the, the only thing that the, you can't change history, not one line thing applies to is Barbara. Um, and even that's not to, uh, consistent throughout the episode because it serves his purposes in one way for Barbara to be mistaken for the lead, the God of this people. And so to the extent that it helps him, he's fine with it. But then the moment that she crosses over and starts thinking for herself and starts saying, I want to stop this, then it becomes, um, you know, problematic for him. I think one of the really big problems, you know, that every time I look at this episode, I, I have a problem with is that the wrong people are in the wrong place. Right, I think if it had been the doctor who was the god, and it was Barbara as the historian, let's not forget that is her, you know, character trait. She's a historian. She'd be holding him back. Exactly, that would be fascinating because she would be saying to him, "Look, you can't do this. You're going to screw up not just this society. You're going to screw up the world. You're going to stop me from coming into existence, possibly. Then you've got yourself actual drama. That's real stuff." And, and it just saddens me every time I see this episode to think, oh, my God, it was almost there. They, Luke Arati had it in his hands, and he just fumbled the ball. Now, Maybe, maybe that, because it's family viewing and our child, you know, children's programming. It would be uneducated. They, they, they wouldn't think that deep through it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. I don't know if I, I, I mean, I think you're right. No. I think you're absolutely hmm. right, Darth. But um, uh, that's asking for a vision that may not have been there at that time. Maybe I, I, who knows? I'm just saying, you know, looking at it now, consuming it now, yeah, uh, yeah. It, it is completely obvious that the wrong people are in the wrong place, and th- that you could make a, a drama out of this um, in, in a totally different way. And I think, you know, and we did do that. You know, where we did that? We did that in. No, we didn't do that. I was going to say Fires of Pompeii, but I guess she. Never mind. At least fi- Fires of Pompeii makes more sense. But I guess I guess really that. Donna is in the... That was the lesser um, evil, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, right, 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 right. Yeah. Now, 
The other thing, that's that's one big thing. And, and, you know, basically, if you can't get over that hump, the rest of the episode is kind of screwed for you. But here's the other thing that really is just horrible about this episode. It is a convention of the Hartnell era. And a little bit later as we get into things, but certainly of the Hartnell era. Um, the reason that the Doctor and his companions get involved in any story is... Not the Tenth Doctor thing of, you know, once you land and step outside the doors, you're part of events, and so therefore you can't just leave again, or whatever. Or you can't just bring people in TARDIS and save them, or whatever. You know, the, the, the Hartnell era is you land, you step outside the TARDIS, and then something happens to block your access to the TARDIS, right? We see it in Dalek Invasion of Earth, where suddenly rubble falls down onto the TARDIS and you can't quite get to the doors anymore. Uh, we see it here, where the, they, they leave the tomb and the big uh, doorway blocks their access. Um, and it happens various other places in various other ways. That's fine. I can accept that as a convention. What I can't accept about this episode whatsoever is the degree to which Episode 4, Day of Darkness, is... 100% about trying to get into the tomb. And yet, they get into the tomb at the top of the story, right? At the end of episode three, what happens? We got Ian, action man, goes down into the sewers, right? At the top of the episode four, he pops out of the sewers, voila, he's on the side of the tomb that they want to be on. He's there, there's the TARDIS, they can leave, great. So science teacher Ian, right? Science teacher, thinker, opens the door, gets on the other side of the door, says, oh, look, Barbara, I found the TARDIS. We can leave. And then what does he do? He closes the door. It's not just that he leaves and it accidentally shuts behind him. And It has the leather strap. Pulled upon no. underneath it to lever it back up. Uh-uh. Maybe. But he closes it. Physically closes it. He doesn't yeah, just with let the, it... With the strap in his hand. It has the strap in his hand. Okay. Strap in his hand. Science teacher. Yeah, yeah. It's not strong enough. Yeah, he should have realized yeah. that. Before the time of the wheel. Surely he knows this. Surely he knows this. Why does he not hold it open with his body? Say to Barbara, hey, Barbara, let's go. Find Susan, find the doctor, come back here. When you're ready, knock on the side of the wall. I'll open it. We'll go. Doesn't do that. The thing is, we've had the convention, of course, that the doctor, that the TARDIS is part of the story. That uh, yes. They've told that in the, in the newer series of Doctor Who, that um, one of the reasons why, you know, uh, the Doctor, if he, if he does it wrong, he can't just come back in the TARDIS and do it right the second time, the third time, the fourth time. Because as you quite rightly said, it become, they become part of the events. So, I mean, well, it's the same reason, isn't it? No, the story no, would be over. No, it's not the same reason, because this isn't the Doctor. This is Ian. Ian doesn't know anything about that. And, of course, you can't, it's not exactly fair to apply logic from the Tenth Doctor's era to the First Doctor's era. But the, the bigger thing is, this isn't, you know, we know that the Doctor just wants to leave the whole time. If it, if it had been the Doctor on the other side of this wall, he would have said, you know what, guys, come to me. I'm not leaving. I'm back here. 
you know, we we need to go. The doctor would always, you know, the, the entire motivation of the doctor in this episode is to leave. It's not to do anything else. He doesn't even really want to be there. He doesn't want to be observing these events. He wants to leave the entire time from episode one. And the thing is, Steve, um, Ian is the one that's in control of the situation. You know, and he doesn't... He doesn't care about these uh, fineries of, uh, you know, time travel theory and all that stuff. All he knows is he was sent in there by the doctor to find a way into the the chamber where the TARDIS is and to get an access route out. And it's the lamest. It is absolutely the lamest and most insensible way of trying to find your way back to that chamber that you could possibly think of. And not only that, but... You know, it's not just that he, he has this strap, right, and that somehow they're going to maybe pull it. It's that um, why doesn't he get a big object, jam open the door, just do that, you know, or, or not even try to do this thing of be on the outside and finding your way back in. Again, why doesn't he just turn to Barbara and say, go find everybody else, come back here, knock on the wall, we'll go. That's it. That's the end of the story. That's all they're trying to do in the first place. They right. don't do that. Uh, uh, let me just stop you there for a moment. I mean, mm. one of the things that I thought when I saw that, I didn't think mm. how, that, how fragile the strap was. I thought, oh, it'll be petrified, this leather. But of course, then I'm thinking, mm. no, we're back in the 15th century. That leather might be quite new, so it, it might not be strong. Yeah. And I just want to break yeah. away for one moment as well mm. to just say to guests 10 and 12, Ian, don't really want to allow chat for guests 10 and 12. They've stayed with us for quite some time now. We have this policy that people are new to the call we don't know. Uh, Russia is on the phone. Ian, I don't know if you want to try unmuting Russia. The, the, the person has tried to get in many, many times, uh, called in an audio. Um, Russia, we're, we're, if Ian will, who's uh, running it, I'm Dave AC, help me. Um, you are on the call and can hear us. Do you want to speak briefly? Um, because um, we always welcome new people, but we are always concerned if they're going to be um, you know, on board with the topic. Hello? You're unmuted, Russia. You you may not know who you are. I think it's Pasha on the phone. Okay, well, I'm assuming Ian will re-mute you and hoping you're just using your phone to listen in. Okay, sorry about that, Darth. We, we've been talking uh, for a long time. Uh, I just want to check uh, whether Jeff will be able to come in on audio after you, but uh, continue for the moment, please. Right. So, I mean, you got this thing at the, at the beginning of, the, of Dave Darkness where Ian tries to get out, does get out, somehow inexplicably decides to close the door anyway, which is how he got everybody got into this jam in the first place. And then the plan is, in the middle of the episode, let me go back with Susan to the Garden of Peace, try to do this whole thing again, go through the tunnels, get back out, but obviously, at that point in the, in the serial, Ixta and his crowd are looking for him. They, they in fact, do this whole um, elaborate trap that Susan recognizes as a trap, you know, of lock on the ground and every, you know, that whole thing. He deliberately walks into a trap, in other words, trying to go back through that realm. And, and the thing is, he had to know at that point that 
Ixta knew he would try to go back to that place because Ixta is the one that provides the knowledge in the first place. I mean, well, yeah, the I whole episode. I've got to jump in again. I'm sorry uh, to be yeah, rude yeah. with you, but mm. even today I was watching, um, well, this weekend, an episode of Silent Witness, which is one of my favorite programs, and you still get people that discover a body. Oh, there's a piece of lead piping. I'll pick it up to examine it. Yeah, now when your fingerprints are all over the lead piping, you're likely to be thought of as the murderer. I mean, they yeah. still do it now in dramas. I mean, you, you could call it poor writing then, but that poor writing is still done now. The number of times you see somebody, oh, he's got a dagger in his knife. I better get hold of that bloody dagger, pull it out of his chest, so I'll have blood on myself and the fingerprints on the dagger. Nobody will think I did it. I was just trying to relieve mm. this poor guy, the dagger in his chest. Right, yeah. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, just, p- directors haven't learned. They still do that nowadays. Yeah. I suppose. It just it just strikes me that this one is... Uh, the, the, the entire last episode is this... It's not even a comedy of errors. It's just somebody who is supposed to be extremely intelligent doing things that are ridiculously stupid. Um, and... And the obvious reason is because it should have been really three episodes and somehow it needed to be four. You know, I mean, because that was, you know, what the commission was for was for four. But for some reason, Lucarati puts this, the thing that kind of should have been the ending of the episode. It should have been about trying to find the way through the, um, the sewers at the end of episode four, not the end of episode three, but the end of episode four. Um, and because Lucarati essentially solves the problem of getting back to the TARDIS at the end of series, at the end of episode three, then you've got these incredibly false um, uh, hurdles that he has to go through in episode four that only serve to make Ian look completely stupid. Um, and... It's really weird because you could keep all the good things that are in episode four. You could keep the the fight that happens with Ixtel on the top of the pyramids, which looks fabulous for the era, by the way. Um, uh, and you could keep the whole business of the you know Otlock property transfer to Kameka. You could keep all that. Just you know, keep the mystery of how to get into the chamber until that last episode. Very weirdly structured story. Totally. Such, such that it, it, at every turn, every time you think you're getting some traction in the story, every time you think there's something interesting going on, where you see good acting, where you see you know really great direction, it's immediately followed by something that unnecessarily prolongs the plot, unnecessarily complicates the plot, ridiculously stretches it out, you know, such that the net effect is exactly the effect of the beast below, where you know everything could be solved if you just simply pulled back a little bit and saw that there's a big whale underneath your city. I mean, that it is exactly the same problem. If you just sat there and thought about the problem for a second, you would figure out a way to make it actually good, interesting drama without too much effort. But instead, you end up with this thing that, you know, I, I think people celebrate far too highly. And I think that the reason that they celebrate it highly is because Marco Polo doesn't exist. If Marco right. Polo existed we would look at this thing as the piece of crap that it is. Seriously. We would look at it and say, no, absolutely justified. We would look at it and we would say, you know what? This is nothing 
compared to the glory that is Marco Polo. Because the, the, the narrative of Marco Polo that you can hear today in you know, audio reconstructions is fine. It may be an episode too long. That's the problem of any Doctor Who, really, of mm-hmm. this era. But the actual narrative, it, it makes more sense. Um, you know, the taking of the TARDIS uh, on a, uh, on a um, whatever that was, a, an ox ride or whatever, into Beijing or the capital city, whatever it is, um, that's a really good reason why the people are separated from the TARDIS. The reason why the people are separated from the TARDIS in this episode is totally stupid. It is because, I mean, even if you don't get into the episode four stuff about Ian doing silly things with a door, what they do in episode one is silly. Surely the doctor has got to realize, or Ian, or Barbara, we're talking about all these people are intelligent, supposedly. Susan, intelligent. She's a time lord, right? Surely they've got to realize, as they leave this place, this door is really heavy. It looks like it's on a swing, it looks like that swing only pushes outward. I mean, you would know this, right? You know when a door it's opens It's on the counterbalance, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you know when you come into a door which way the door opens. I mean, that's, it's, you don't even have to be smart to know that. But they see how it opens, and they've got to realize this really heavy thing is going to close behind us, and it's going to block our access. But yet they all go through, and then, oh, my God, we're separated from the TARDIS. How stupid. I mean, everything about the the basic bones of this story is actually stupid. And I I don't use that word lightly. I mean, it requires you to be, it requires the characters to be dumb in order to make the story work in your mind. And And the audience to be cheap. Yeah, Yeah, pretty much. I mean, if this were the Sixth Doctor and Perry, could this happen? Yes, it could. If Perry were the last person out of the door, absolutely this could happen. And you would say, that makes sense because this character has been shown to be stupid. She has other qualities that are good. Uh, and I don't mean physical qualities. She does have other – she's got empathy. She's got you know, companion ability. She's got you know, some other qualities that are good. But she is stupid. And so she would do – you can imagine her doing something like this, but you cannot imagine anybody in that first Doctor's crew to be so stupid as to not understand the basic mechanics of a door. I mean, and without that, the story doesn't happen. So, well, I guess yeah. I, I guess I'll leave it there. But I really do not like the ISX. Can I come oh, back uh, in on something? Yep. Uh, well. Yeah, briefly if you could, and uh, but uh, yeah, I I can defend it as well. But go on, Koba. Something that I forget I mentioned during a bit was something that David Tennant said. We don't really get who Susan is ever within the context of Doctor Who. I mean, yeah. that's a major flaw. In my well, opinion. you can't you can't hang that on this particular story though. No, I'm just talking overall. Okay. Yeah. By the way, feminist, speaking of Susan, feminists have to love that bit in episode three, is it? Episode two, somewhere in the middle. No, it's three, right? It's Bride of Sacrifice, where yeah. uh, you know she has to read the Aztec how to be a yeah. good housewife thing. Oh, my God. Feminists have to just love that. 
I mean, it is it couldn't again. This story could not be more different than modern Doctor Who if it tried. Oh, I'm sorry, Dave. I'll let you go in there, but I just want to say one other. I give a. I'll end on a word of praise. The one of the things that I do love about this episode is the music. Uh, so really, it's. I think this is the only time this particular uh, composer was involved in Doctor Who. Really interesting music. So interesting that actually there's a composer here. I think this is the first time that you have. I mean, I'm sorry, this is the first time you have a conductor of an orchestra in the credits until you get all the way to Ben Foster, who's the modern conductor of Murray Gold's music. So, interesting music. Uh, so, Rodney Bennett. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, let me uh, play a little clip before we go on, and I'll just put a link in the room to that. Ian, we may be going to you next. Jeff says he's unable to talk at the moment. So, um, let's uh, just play another clip. Destroy him! Stop! Your place is in the temple. I am loyal to those who serve me. If you are your taxer, save him. My servant dies, so does Clotoxus. Put it down. I did as you commanded. Now you must obey me. Those who serve me shall not be punished. So be it. The contest is ended. Ixter may not claim the victory. Attend the attacker's servant. Take the old man to the courtyard and, in obedience to the attacker, release him. Is it true? The old man gave you this to win a victory? It is true. It is not magic. It is the juice from a plant. Tonila will know. Why did he aid you? It was a trick. He did not know that I was to fight Ian. He promised to help me if I told him the secret of my father's work. What secret? How the tomb of the attacker may be opened. I must question him about it. Clotoxel. What of Ian? He was at my mercy. So shall he be again, I promise it. And next time you will honour your promise. Actually, that was a good clip to play at that point because uh, some lovely music, uh, atmospheric music in there, whether that was the, the incidental music composed by Sir Richard Rodney Bennett, uh, I don't know, but... Uh, no, it is. Yeah, that's it. It is. Ah, excellent. Good, good. Ian, how are you? Are you okay to come on audio? Yeah. If not, okay. Okay. It, it, this is a very, very difficult show to be on because um, the name Ian being mentioned so, so many times. <laughs> <laughs> and if you're a little distracted, you're like, what? Huh? Who me? No. Oh, no. Still talking about that. <laughs> oh, dear. Um, I'm going to just talk about the whole whole thing altogether. I've, I've, I watched the, uh, the Essex, I think it was about a year and a half ago when um, when Callum was still in the habit of uh, getting up in, in the middle of the night. And, of course, you know, me being the good dad, I, you know, would get up with him. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, surfing through Netflix and started, thought, well, hang on, I'll, I'll just start, you know, watching uh, some of these old episodes of Doctor Who that I'd never seen before. Um, because at the time when I came into Doctor Who, I, you know, really... Um, 
I didn't have that much of an interest, to be honest, in, in watching these the the old serials in black and white. Um, yeah, flawed, flawed character, yeah. I just had no interest. And, and even, you know, when I used to go to the Doctor Who meetings, uh, they, you know, they put on a black and white episode, I'd uh, spend time talking to somebody about something else, you know. Um, and so it was neat to kind of sit down, now that I'm an adult, an adult and sit there and like, okay, no, I'm going to watch this. I found it quite quite interesting to to, to watch because uh, like like others have said it's it, it's so incredibly different to what we have now and and of course even what I grew up with um, and I was briefly saying to Liam earlier when uh, I had it on I was doing a bit of a quick rewatch before the show tonight today and he's like uh, what planet are they on I'm like they're not they're on they're on Earth he's like oh we're in Mexico and, <laughs> and so I, ex- I, ex- I explained to them um, about you know the fact that you know the this was meant to be educational and and I think I mean not that I know a lot about the Aztecs either but I get how they're they're do, do, doing it and it's I think it's a kind of a neat little thing um, not something that would work these days I don't think uh, they'd have to be a far more um, far more clever I think about how you you go about. Uh, including educational materials in a show, uh, <laughs> but you know, I found it quite, quite a quite a neat little story. I mean, um, yes, it's got flaws, but so is the modern series in, in oh, so many ways. Um, but I don't know. It's it's it's. I'm not going to go too deep into this, as you can tell. I'm not very I'm not a very deep person. Um but I, I just find it a neat story and you know, everybody gets a bit to to do in it. It's not doctor oriented, it's it's not anybody oriented. Um it kinda of nicely juggles through the cast, I think, and gives everybody a bit to do. Um uh, and I, I, I think it's actually quite well acted too, the the guy who plays the the, the main bad guy at um the what's his name, Dave? What's his name? Oh, you're tactful. Yeah, you're yeah tactful. I think he, I think he's dead menacing the whole way through, um, and you know it's it, it's a neat little story. Um, I did also manage uh, to see the uh, the Doctor's revisited uh, footage that BBC America uh, had for uh, and the, wrapped around this. I think, I'm not sure if it was done if they interspersed it or if it was a lead up into it. Um, but it was actually quite well done. I was quite surprised and uh, quite pleasantly surprised that they didn't go the route of uh, some of the other things that uh, BBC America have done where they grab any old person, uh, namely um, American you know, semi-celebrities, and have their thoughts on Doctor Who. Um, you know, we've got Stephen Moffat, um, we've got um, David Tennant, we've got John Barrowman, um, yeah, we've got people from you know, the show to talk about the show, and and they, they do a nice little job. I mean, it's it's only about twenty five, twenty four, twenty five minutes worth of stuff, but I think it gives a nice little kind of glimpse into uh, you know, the William Hartnell era and, and and who the first Doctor was, without getting too bogged down in well, this is how the show started, and this is what we had to do, and 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 this is who how this person was cast. Uh, you, I mean, you really could go into a lot of detail, um, which really in this day and age, unless you're actually actively seeking out uh, a documentary about you know the beginnings of Doctor Who, um, 
you know, people would just skim past it. So I don't have that kind of time. So this gives people a nice little uh, glimpse into uh, the first Doctor and the fact that you know, you know, back then he wasn't the first Doctor; he was the only Doctor. Uh, this this they had no point. Yeah, at no point until you know he decided to step down from the role did they have any idea that this was going to continue on. And here we are, you know, 50 years later, still going. Um, but without, as as I think as uh, David Tennant said in the clips, without um, you know this beginning, you know, we wouldn't have the the show. And uh, I, I I I like the Aztecs and I love the clips that they did. Um, this is not going to dwell too much on this. I, I'm looking forward to seeing uh, the rest of what BBC America has to bring to the table because it's nice to see them making this effort to show uh, you know, the classic series episodes. And I'm, and I'm hoping to people, regardless of whether they get into um, the early episodes or not, uh, give this a chance. Uh, you know, watch the next one. Uh, it's a it's a different story. It's going to be a different Doctor. Uh, tune in and watch and see what you think. Because you may find that at some point you start looking at it, um, how you know, fans of the classic series now look at uh, our current Doctors and say, well, I can see a bit of Hartnell there and I can see a bit of uh, Troughton and that. And uh, we tend to overlay the past doctors onto the new doctors and so it'd be interesting for you looking back to say oh i see a little bit of you know matt smith there or you working your way backwards it's, a, it's an interesting thing to do to kind of um explore the archaeology of, of of doctor who uh as, as they dig up these these episodes and, and you know show them on you know american tv uh you know at least just turn your tv on and leave it on the channel i wonder <laughs> Is this going to lead to a revival of interest in the classic series? I mean, are we going to get a serial? It would be nice to see if if this does kind of take off a little bit for BBC America, um, that they maybe uh, go back after the 50th anniversary and, and, and maybe explore another, you know, some other episodes, uh, you know, a classic here, you know, a classic there, and just, just spotlight them and do another little... Um, you know, segment beforehand and uh, interviewing some of the people. I mean, that would be great. I mean, it's a long shot, I'm sure, but uh, we'll we'll see how the, the this year progresses. And as Dave said, we'll uh, we'll try and um, uh, coincide, you know, our show, you know, with 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 what they present us with each episode. I mean, we don't know what the uh, they're going to bring us for the the second Doctor episode, but uh, yeah. Hopefully you'll join us for that, and hopefully you'll watch along as well and, uh, and kind of explore it, especially if you're a new series fan. Um, that's the big thing for me, I guess, is is the hope that we we get some new series fans on here who haven't really explored um, the classic series and, and get their their point of view uh, as to, to what it's like. Uh, like Stephen Moffat said in the clip that I played in the beginning, uh, you know, there's, there's and, and he also said on the the the, the, uh, the BBC America special, it would be great to be able to go wipe your memory and go back and watch these things. Uh, I find as a, as a as a fan who grew up you know in the the seventies eighties that you always see these clips and everything, and so they become uh, ingrained in your head as is like oh yeah this is just you know this is how it began and it becomes a very kind of uh, you're just used to seeing it. And so it'd be really neat to hear people come on here 
uh, who have never really seen these stories before and, and, and to hear what you think. Kind of like when we review the new episodes as they go out. You know, that's kind of my hope going forward with this. And uh, with that, I'll uh, bring you over to Dave. Okay. Um, I, I know Ken's got a pressure time. I'm just going to play a clip, Ken, just over a minute. And then uh, I know you said you have to drop off about five past the hour. So No, no, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm here. Okay. Well, I'll still go to you after this just in case you have any comeback. So I'll play this clip and then I'll have my say after that. I greet the good and noble doctor. Ah, my dear Kabeka, how nice to see you again. The garden's been a lonely place without you. When one's interest is held, loneliness does not exist. I was merely passing the time until you arrived. Oh, um, this sign, I, uh, I haven't noticed it before. It is Yataksa sign. In almost every building on it is stated Yataksa. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, my dear, cocoa beans. We use these to barter for our daily needs. What an excellent idea. A currency you can drink. Delicious. Do you know our customs? Yes, my dear, of course. The drinking of cocoa has its own special meaning. Yes, I agree. A rare delight. We should take a cup together. Are you certain? Yes, yes, quite. Now give me some beans and I'll prepare them. You insist upon this? I do, I insist absolutely. As a token of my esteem. Hmm? Gods of smiling favor through your eyes. May it always be so. My dear doctor, I accept with all my heart. Wait here, my dear. I'll be back. Oh, there's an old English expression there. I should Coco. <laughs> but he won't be back. Um, uh, Ken, do you want to just add anything up? At this yeah. point, and then go on. Yes, I was a doctor, a flirtatious devil, even then. <laughs> Very good. Um, again, the interesting uh, thing is that we're getting people who've never seen what Doctor Who is to see the possibilities. And every every month, being really thankful to BBC America uh, for the class act. Um, I wish they would show more classic episodes, but but again, you know, thankful for what uh, we're having. Um, certainly better on BBC America than on Sci-Fi Channel. I I think it would be nice now that um, all total totally unrelated. Um, it would be great if they would have Sarah Jane Adventures. Uh, on BBC America too, uh, for the anniversary year. Uh, just thinking about uh, Liz Sladen. Um, well, I suppose it depends on whether they get good response from from doing these. I mean, um, yeah. I don't I don't know whether the BBC America has any sort of. I mean, obviously it's got an online presence, but whether it has an actual feedback section, maybe some people who have access to that can just see if there's you know, favourable mutterings going on, uh, you know, if this has been well received. Yeah. But um, I'm really fascinated to see what episodes are going to be picked for each doctor. Hopefully we'll get some more pivotal episodes. I mentioned earlier, I, I don't think there's any question, what we're going to see with the eighth doctor, <laughs> being that there's only one adventure. So that, that'll that be and, rather... And, and, and Mike said that 
he thought it was likely that Tomb of the Cybermen would be for the second Doctor. I think that would be excellent. But we can't confirm that. Yeah, that would be excellent. Can I stop there and have we got it confirmed that they have the permission to do the TV movie? I mean, they don't fully own it. So how do we know that it's going to be anything for the Well, I'm, I'm making the assumption that if they're doing this with all the doctors... A couple of sites have mentioned that that's going to be the choice, but again, whether they they have the inside knowledge to know whether there's any issue about it. Yeah. So, uh, Sorry, just to be clear, we have a press statement from BBC America saying they no. are actually doing... Oh, we don't even have that. I don't, we, we, don't know so. that we don't know that they're actually doing an episode for every doctor. Oh, they're doing something for the Eighth Doctor, so I think people no, no. are thinking it's Hobson's choice. Yeah, no, there was, no, no. you know, just I mean, assumption no, made on that. No, I'm asking for something very specific. There is a press announcement from the BBC saying that they are doing this series and that the series will include something from every Doctor. I think it's been said that it will be from every Doctor, yeah. Yeah. Like to see I, I'm just scrolling down the Doctor Who news page to see if there's anything uh, there. We're so many things posted. We're not confusing this with the thing that's going on at the BB, BFI. No. Okay. The reports of this were saying that they're each month they were going to feature a different Doctor. The, yeah, the BFI is screening the uh, the tomb one. We know that. Um, It'll be interesting to see this because it would be fairly extraordinary to me if they actually were in America able to broadcast the TV movie again. That would be interesting to me. It it was shown on a pay cable station some years ago. Yeah, that was some years ago. Yeah, yeah. but may, maybe the uh, to entertain video release has changed all of that. Maybe that changed no, the right. Why it would. I don't see why it would. Yeah. Totally different medium. But, but we'll see. We'll see. One would have thought that Universal would have jacked up the price of it. since Because before, when it was on Sci-Fi or wherever, um, that was you know before the new series came back. So there was no particular premium on it. But now one would think Universal would try to make something a little bit more off of it. And one would wonder whether BBC America has... You know, the money for their price. Yeah, we'll see. Mm. Well, you could argue. I mean, uh, I mean, we we had the point made by Mike earlier that um, uh, the Aztecs episode that was shown was the un uncleaned up version and shown, and they obviously did it on the cheap. Maybe, maybe they are, you know, ha- having some of the episodes have been picked as as the cheaper option. Maybe because they've got the the heavy cost of one. Mm-hmm. I know yeah, that's just there's no rationale behind that. But I, I'm I'm scrolling down the Doctor Who news page and there's nothing nothing really black and white. But I, I know a few people. Uh, I mean, it's one of these. They obviously if they're going to cover all the doctors. That's the only one they can do, unless they just do for the Eighth Doctor, just do a special documentary. I suppose that's the option with clips from the uh, the film. And Seventh Doctor is putting stuff in um, text, so um, let me just play uh, another clip, and then I'm going to just uh, sight read what uh, Jeff's put in text. That came out of the tomb. 
And the man who discovered it later disappeared in the garden. And on the wall is a stone with the Ataxa's sign on it. You mean there's a tunnel from there to the tomb? Yes, that's what I suspect. Where did you get hold of this? My fiancé. I see. Oh, what? Yes, I made some cocoa and got engaged. <laughs> oh, don't giggle, my boy. It's neither here nor there. We must find that tunnel tonight. Yes, all right. Now, I'll wait for you in the garden, and when Ixter's asleep, you come out. <laughs> I will, all right. Oh, by the way, Doctor, congratulations. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, uh, right, let me... Jeff's put some other things about costume design earlier on, but let me read this. Um... Uh, 2013 is the 50th anniversary of Doctor Who, so each month BBC America will take the TARDIS back in time with, a brand, with brand new specials on all 11 Doctors. Uh, it, and this is from the, the BBC America uh, link that he's put in the room. Um, but it doesn't specifically state which story will be played for each Doctor, just a special. And that's BBC America Doctor Who videos, the Doctor's revisited first Doctor, and so on. Um, so make of that what you will. Uh, let me just put what he said about from the TARDIS Wikipedia. Um, the Aztec costumes were very accurate, it says, uh, that, uh, that it is a myth that the costumes covered more of the body than they should have. Um, for the second Doctor, I think we'll get the Tomb of the Cyberman. This is Jeff speaking now. Um, other than the Crotons, the tomb is the only four-episode Second Doctor story. So uh, let me play. I've got two more clips. I'm going to play one more clip. It's and I'll have my point. Go on, go on. The Mind Robber, although it is a five-parter, it's slightly shorter, so it would fit the allocated time slot. Okay, thank you for that. I'll play the oh, next oh, clip. Go on. Sorry. No, yeah, okay. Jeff, the thing is, Jeff has quoted. If it is a myth that the costumes cover more of the body than they should have, then the infotext on the DVD is wrong. Uh, I I don't know. Paul Schoons, I don't know if, was it Paul Schoons? No, no, not not this early. In fact, it, it is a reasonably horrible infotext in in the ter- in the sense that there's not that much information there. But one thing that they specifically point out is that Daphne Dare's research suggested that. You know, women in Aztec society went topless, and we should expect that they would. I mean, why why wouldn't they? Um, why wouldn't they? Indeed. I mean, seriously, because of the climate you're in, yeah. of course they would have gone topless. Um, so I I don't know. I wouldn't trust the TARDIS wiki on that one. I don't think. Uh, there, uh, I must admit, uh, uh, on my uh, Doctor DVD, one of the specials I haven't watched is. Um, um, uh, restoring the Aztecs. Uh, look at the digital remaster. Oh, no, no, what's it? Designing the Aztecs. The designer of the Aztecs, uh, Barry Newberry, looks back at, on his contribution to the story in this specially recorded interview. But I haven't actually watched that interview. So um, people who've got the DVD, uh, check uh, some of the extras on that and uh, maybe get back to us. Um, I'll play... Uh, this is a slightly longer clip and then I'll have my say. I know... We're past the, um, well past the, coming up to the two and a half hour mark, and Ian may be pressed for time now, so I won't be long when I do my bit, Ian. Ian! I knew he was lying. He said you were dead. I nearly was. Come on, let's get going. Where are we going? The TARDIS. Come on. 
Yes, it's bound to take him some time to get there and back. Oh, I just want to get out of here as quickly as possible. Mm. And the history? Remains unchanged. Nobody writing? This isn't going to be easy, you know. Well, if we all <clears throat> pull. Yes, we can pull, but uh, I think we'd better do it at an angle. What we really need is a pulley. Pulley? But the Aztecs don't have the wheel. I know, but it isn't going to be easy. My dear Susan. Oh, how glad. I'll tell you how glad I am to see you later on. Come along. Don't waste time. All right. Susan, as soon as the door opens, grab it. Right. Now, this All is right. not going to be so easy as you think, young man. Oh? Well, let's give it a try. Anyway, yes, ready? Now, be careful. Ready? Hold it might break. No, 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 no. Wait, wait, wait. Let's do it in the angle. Come along. All right. Right? Right. Ready? Yes. Could he have escaped? Did you not let the handling escape? She must be in my power. I shall find her. No, I shall. I have another task for you. Tell me. Should Orthlock learn of the warrior's return, he will be fully convinced that she is Yataksa. What can I do? His faith in her must be completely destroyed. Is this one Eons? Then use it on Orthlock. To strike down a high priest, there is no greater offense. Will you say it's humiliated? Each day as the sun rises, Ortlock walks in meditation alone in the garden, approaching with step, and strike him down. Leave this close at hand. So that Ian will be blamed. This time, Exter, do not fail me. Okay, um, yeah, the, the, there's, there was, I think there's a lot to recommend this. Uh, I do realise that... Um, the, 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 there must have been the limitations of the camera work and so on, uh, and, and, and going back to the, the fight sequence, yes, it, it, it was poorly done in some ways, but in other ways I thought it was quite well done. I, I thought um, some of the holes that Ian was using was really great, the sort of arm locks and so on, uh, and showed it great, and, and I actually thought that some people might have criticised saying, well, it seems funny that suddenly, uh, you know, Ian, who's a teacher, would be able to sort of perform this action man role. But my thinking on that was be that, of course, this this aired in uh, uh, 1964, and we assume that, that uh, you know, the Ian character's in his sort of early 30s. So we're assuming that, um, although he would have been too young to have served in the Second World War, he probably still would have done, even as a teacher, he would have done a couple of years national service. So he will have learned some basic fighting skills from his national service time. So I thought some of the uh, the moves he did was really good, except, of course, all the dancing about didn't work too well. Um, I take a and more the neck pinch is kind of <laughs> impressive, I suppose. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, well, that's, that's not exactly basic surface training, but no, mm. no, he karate mm. chopped to the side. But I mean, I mean, if he if he was training some sort of uh, espionage thing, I don't, which I don't suppose he was. But um, uh, uh, what I mean, I, I thought you could rationalize a way that he yeah. would have those skills, because I mean, my brother was just my Absolutely. brother just missed national service because he was uh, they just about finished it a year or two before. He hit the um, the age at which you were done. This is for anybody who not from the UK and is not familiar that um, for for a number of years after your all all young uh, men. And I assume there was a similar thing in America that you had to do two years national service if you were deemed to be um, you know fit and healthy to do so. Um, some of the directing, and again, uh, I'm going to go to Darth on that. I mean, uh, I saw some here of the what what I call the um, 
you know, the Lex Luthor school of acting, where their main character doesn't look at the person they're talking to, but they're obscuring their emotions from that person. So we, the viewer, see them facing us, even though they're talking to the other member behind them. Uh, And it gives that quite, uh, you know, distinct way where they can be saying the things to the other person, but we can see from their face and expressions uh, the real intent or whatever of those words. Uh, so, so, so I I like that. Uh, one of the other things I thought, I mean, of course, it was in the educational theme. What I thought was quite brave of this is that when one of the victims was saved by Barbara, he wasn't grateful. Uh, he, he felt that this had brought dishonor. And what does he do? He leaps from the top of the um, the pyramid to his certain death. Uh, I would imagine that a lot of schools, especially for older schools, you know, with people doing their exams and that, that would have led to great discussion about, you know, why why do you think this? Why do you think that? Uh, and even the other fact that the, 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 the victim at the end, the one that was uh, uh, finally brought to the sacrifice during the eclipse, uh, was called the perfect victim. And the fact that he was granted you know, everything he desired because he was basically, you know, in this state of, um, you know, uh, sort of a, a almost a god on earth during this period leading up to his his d- destiny. So I, I thought that was handled very sensibly. So all in all, I think, uh, given the, the, the sort of things that we see in hindsight as uh, being a little bit weak and a little bit, uh, slow. I thought there was an awful lot to recommend this episode, although I'm sure it's not necessarily the best one. And I did like the fact that Mike reminded us that at least we are still with the original companions on this episode. So uh, that's pretty much all I want to say. I'm going to play my final clip, I think. Uh, yeah, my final clip, and then we'll go back to Ian to see if he wants to take us round the room and out. But I do thank everybody for staying with us for a good two and a half hours on this. We we have kept pretty much to the Aztecs, but we were using this as a an insight into the Hartnell years. So here's my last clip and then I'll go back to Ian. found another face, a better. That's the good you've done. You failed to save a civilization, but at least you helped one man. And Ian? 
Back to you. All right. Yeah. Um, I think we'll close it out at this point because I really do need to dash, unfortunately. Um, but like I said earlier, uh, keep an eye out on the BBC America specials and uh, also stay tuned to us because we will be uh, covering all the doctors as much as we can. And uh, yeah, thank you all for joining us today. Dave, uh, anything to add before we uh, leave? Well, only that uh, next week's topic will be probably chosen from the list of uh, the poll that Ian put up on the Cut and Collective page. So yes. we'll get and back you to you on that one. Yep. And if you haven't had a chance to uh, uh, make your voice heard, uh, head over to our Facebook page and uh, you'll find those polls lurking around there somewhere. I've had to unpin them from the top uh, for the time being. Um, as Anthony Burge has um, posted on our page that he's uh, entered a competition. It's a, a haiku, uh po haiku these uh entered into a competition on and uh, if you head over to our facebook page you'll find a link to it and if you like it then like it and uh hopefully he'll win so yeah a little bit of a plug for uh um for the um, people who are behind uh the mythological dimensions of doctor who and other uh, in other books so yeah uh check out our facebook page have your say in the poll like the like the uh the po haiku and uh have a good evening. All right. Until next week, it's goodbye from Mr. Dave AC. And it's goodbye from Ian, the Sixth Doctor. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs>